This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 748, a conversation with Ron Friends and Tom DeFalco, creator commentary on A Next 7 to 12. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is episode 748. It's our uh, conversation with Ron Friends and Tom DeFalco, and specifically, it's our creator commentary on A-Next, number 7 to 12. If you want to check out the first part of our uh, creator commentary, it's uh, back in episode 744, which uh, was published about two weeks, two and a half weeks ago or so, um, and that was uh, Ron uh, Friends on his own talking about A-Next 1 to 6, but for the uh, second part of this uh special series uh looking back at the rest of the anex series we were actually able to wrangle to the legendary tom defalco to join ron to talk about their time on anex now uh we were talking over a skype and telephone connection so at times there's a bit of crosstalk as we're um there's a bit of a delay so we're trying to kind of get a comment in or start asking another question and we start to talk over each other a little so i do apologize so at times there will also be a bit of a quick pause uh between a question being asked that's just why i came out that way in the final product um i wanted to get this out quickly to make sure people got could enjoy this great conversation i was so happy with it uh, we talked for almost three hours if it was about two and a half sorry two hours 45 minutes or so um it's a really enjoyable conversation again ron and tom are such an amazing creative team and uh, when, when tom really gets going like he's some great ideas about comics in general and so does ron i mean ron is just a consummate storyteller um ron mentions at one point that tom had listened to uh you know the first com- creator commentary in uh in preparation for being on the show so um so he would have an idea of some of the stories that ron had talked about as well but they're both such phenomenal storytellers both um with the with the word and talking with me here and also obviously on the page um because they're such you know, amazing comic creators. And I am so happy and so lucky and very appreciative that they took the time out of their days. Uh, I mean, overall, Ron and I have spent, you know, five and a half, uh, sorry, I'm trying to think, almost five hours now talking exclusively about Anext, um, which I was telling my wife the other day, if I could have told, you know, 13, I guess 14 year old me that that was ever going to happen. I, I would have told him there's no way that, that, that you were ever going to do that. Like, uh, these guys were like the rock stars of, of, and they still are. Like, comic creators, I'm a huge fan of comics. These guys are like my rock stars. They're, I get nervous every time I'm going to talk to someone because they're, they've created something that means a lot to me and I'm a big fan. And to be able to chat with someone about their work is, um, amazingly rewarding and very surreal at the same time. Anyways, I'm going to stop prattling on. You have two hours and 45 minutes of Ron Friends and Tom DeFalco to enjoy. Uh, so let's just jumping right into the episode but before we do you can always email me at comic shenanigans at gmail.com like the show on facebook rate and review us on itunes subscribe to us on itunes and also listen to us on stitcher if you do put an itunes review please let me know and i'll make sure to read it aloud on the show uh because i'm in canada so i will see the ones that are from canadian people but i won't see from anyone else unless i actually know to look in those countries so let me know if you do put in a um a rating review and i'll make sure to read it on the air Without further ado, let's jump right into our critter commentary on Anex number 7 to 12 with the legendary Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends. And actually, I'm remiss. We, uh, we, we, they spitballed some ideas for Ron to have a name, and now when I'm, rec- when I'm recording this intro, I forget what they were. But, uh, so it's not just Ron Friends anymore, as you're about to f- discover. Enjoy. 
For today's episode of Commerce Shanigans, I'm very pleased to uh, welcome back to the show two returning guests, both uh, the legendary Tom DeFalco and also Ron Friends. Welcome back, gentlemen. You can tell, right? <laughs> yep. All right, so um, so Ron. Do you know how I, was, well, I was, Adam, do you know how I became the legendary Tom DeFalco? Uh, I I know you've told me, and I'm remiss in forgetting. Okay, so I made it up. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's stuck. I, I made it up. It's stuck. <laughs> I figured if. Michael Jackson could call himself the king of pop. I could call myself the legendary. I think it's enough fair. You, uh, enough of you guys fell for that that, that nonsense. <laughs> and now you actually say it. <laughs> well, I was told to use it all the time. So, uh, you know, I, I spread it myself. And, uh, you well, know, it's you, you so don't, don't, don't give up the game, Tom. Come on. <laughs> You're the legendary. Yeah, okay. So I've had you guys both back on to hopefully talk about A-Next. Now, in the last episode, I had Ron on. We talked about issues one to six of A-Next. And then when we were going to get together to talk about the last six issues of the A-Next series, I was like, you know, let's let's see if Tom will be interested in, in chatting about it. Uh, so, Tom, thank you for agreeing to come back to talk about A-Next. It was the least I could do because Ron offered me ten bucks. <laughs> <laughs> I owe him a 10 spot. And and I think, Adam, before we go any further, I mean, I know for a fact that Mr. DeFoco actually listened to the last episode where we talked about one through six. And and before we proceed, we should probably ask if he has anything to add to any of my remembrances or, you know, any of my fallacies as far as uh, information that was was, uh, passed out during that that last session. Well, uh, I'll turn the floor over to you then, Tom. Was there anything in particular that you would like to chime in on? Uh, no. <laughs> I thought Ron, Ron did a great job like he always does. I, I, uh, I enjoy listening. Whenever Ron is being interviewed on a podcast, I just enjoy listening to him speak because he has uh, such a knowledge of the craft um, that it just, you know... I, I am. You, I am you, proud know how, of you know how people. You know how people came to believe that. You know how, yeah. You know how people came to believe that I have a, a command of the craft, Tom. I kept telling them that. <laughs> uh, it's just like your legendary thing. I just keep telling them I know what I'm doing, and then you know enough people be, uh, hear it and believe it, and now they think I know what I'm doing. So, ah, you fell for it. Yeah. <laughs> well. I'm always impressed. <laughs> <laughs> so, Tom, let me ask you a question then. Oh, um, thanks, Tom. I learned it all from you. <laughs> when, we, when you look back on, uh, obviously you've worked on like tons of books over the t- course of your career, both of you have. Um, how, how does Anex kind of fit into your kind of remembrance of your career and something that you've worked on? 
Uh, obviously, Ron has kept it, kept it in high esteem. How do you look back on it as uh, obviously one of the many collaborations you two have had? But how do you look back on your work on A Next? Just as a, you know, uh, I had a lot of fun working on it with Ron. I, um, I, I know this can sound strange, but I have a tendency not to look back at, you know, look back on my work. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, um, you know, I try to, you know, keep looking forward. Um, uh, but I, you know, a next. You know, anything Ron and I worked on was always a blast because, uh, you know, I'd get to sit back and he'd come up with all these great ideas and I'd go, yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, let's do that. And uh, it was was always a lot easier for me than having to come up with anything on my own. (laughs) That old chestnut. I will say that the one thing he said that was accurate in all of that gobbledygook is that if, if I don't think I can't think of a, of a project that we worked on that we didn't find some way to have fun with it. Um, you know, we don't we we've never been stuck with an assignment that we weren't able to find our in for it and and how we could enjoy it or it was already a character that we enjoyed and we discussed why we enjoyed it and and came up with with a with an approach with a with an and an entree for ourselves into doing it. And I, you know, I, I think I've made clear in a couple of our other interviews, Adam, that I think the one thing that DeFalco and I do right as a brand is we figure if we're having fun, it comes through on the page and the reader has some fun too. You know, that we try not to take ourselves too seriously. Uh, you know, we take the character seriously, we take the situation seriously, but we try always try to inject a little bit tongue-in-cheek fun into it and uh, I, I think that's one of the things that we've been able to do right and I think it's something that most people that enjoy our work would probably say you know has something to do with it you know uh, there have been times when we've been offered things and uh, it never fails I'll look at it and think yeah this is really not for not for me and, I, and I'll call Ron and I'll say alright Ron what do you think and he'll say he'll, he'll say the same thing. Um, uh, I, I think the expression you normally use is uh, "This is not a hill I want to die on." <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like something I might say. I mean, we've actually at, at different times in our in our partnership. I, I can remember a couple of times we actually considered pitching something that we thought would be current that we thought would be something that the current marketplace would like and we would start throwing out ideas about well we could do this and we could do this and this and this and it was usually i mean the one i'm thinking of it was more violent than what we normally do it was more graphic than what we normally do it was really dark um and it ended it was berserker if you remember that one yeah. um, i think you yeah, yeah and it, it just ended up by the time we pitched it, it was like, God, I hope nobody wants to do this because I think I'd be sick to my stomach all the time, you know, that kind of thing. So, uh, you know, we've been very fortunate that way that we haven't been in a position where we've had to take work that we couldn't find some hook for ourselves 
in. And uh, I mean, I hope that's not going on a lot in comics. I'm sure it happens. I'm sure people are handed jobs all the time. And we could have been handed work that, you know, we might have had to work a little harder on some projects to find our sweet spot, you know, to find our hook. Like, what can we do about it? Because like, even when we were handed Thor, we didn't want to try to do Walt because neither one of us had the connection to the original myth that Walt had. Mm-hmm. And if we would have tried to just continue to either try to copy his voice or to copy his approach or to try to do it, you know, it, 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 it wouldn't have worked. It, it would have just been a pale, uh, you know, a pale reflection of what Walt had been doing. So we had to discuss where our connection was to the character. And uh, you know, we did the same thing to Spider-Man. We've done the same thing with all the characters that we've worked on. And, uh, you know, find that, you know, find our doorway into the character so we can have fun with it, so the, so the readership can have fun with it. Mm-hmm. I got to say, the, the sense of fun is, uh, I think I mentioned this before when we talked last time, Ron, but there was just a, such a, a healthy dose of fun throughout the A-Next series, which even though there's obviously some very dire things going on, and we'll talk about some of them in this in this episode, but um, there's just a, a lot of sense of fun and play when you have the you know the heroes and you're exploring this world and showing all these new characters. And I guess the, there was so much freedom that you guys had because you could kind of do anything because it was not beholden to the current Marvel Universe at the time. It was in this future, and you could just kind of have fun with it and do what you wanted. And I would imagine that for both of you, it would be very liberating. There was a wonderful sense of freedom for that uh, fact that we would, we knew we were not going to get caught up in crossovers or having to worry about, you know, what characters we can use and things like that. I, the one thing I remember early on, Tom, and you can address this as, as you were editing that first year, is that there was some pushback from some of the other editors that this was somehow because you were working on it, that, that you were an ex-editor-in-chief, that this was somehow the official Marvel future <laughs> and that they should have some say in how their characters were handled. Wasn't that true at the time? Uh, initially, yes. I heard from from a couple of other editors and I also heard from uh, a, a, you know, a handful of creative people that, uh, you know... Uh, some people got very resentful about the fact that we were dealing with a future thing. Um, so I think I uh, I tried to squash that right away uh, where I put, I think, in the editorial of the f- first book that we first did. Issue. Yeah, the yeah. first issue. Yeah. yeah, the first one that this is not the official, you know, future of the Marvel Universe. You know, this is, you know, one of, you know, any, you know, any number of possible futures. Yeah, in fact, it was one of those things where, you know, to the current marketplace, I'm not sure it was a great sales pitch because people are always so into continuity and there's a lot of people that never read Spider-Girl because it's not the official continuity. And it's like, uh, I have it in front of me here. The FMC2, uh, is MC2 really meant to be the official future of the present Marvel Universe? Absolutely not. (laughs) We're just one of countless possibilities, and we freely admit that all of our stories are just, well, stories. (laughs) Stories which will excite and amuse you, stories which will make you laugh, cry, and sometimes think, and stories about some pretty terrific people with some rather spectacular lives and powers. So there you go. It's a pretty good disclaimer. Um, Well... 
to admit this, but all of the stories are stories. <laughs> they're, they're all yeah, exactly. stories. Yeah, exactly. You know, exactly. It was a in that uh, wonderful story, that wrap-up that Alan Moore did for the uh, pre-crisis Superman, mm-hmm. whatever happened to the uh, Man of Steel or the man, whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow, I'm sorry. And in and, and his little uh, caption that, that began the story, he's, this is an imaginary story, and he makes his point and everything that he says. He reiterates, this is an imaginary story. Aren't they all? Mm-hmm. I guess uh, the um, hardcore readers like to, you know, we get so invested, and I guess that's where some of those issues sometimes happen. It's so crazy to me to think that someone would not read this purely because of, you know, that this isn't the real future of the Marvel Universe, because it should just be about, do you care about the characters? Do you care about the stories? And that should be what matters. And I feel like, yeah. That's what we would hope. I actually got pushed back late in the Spider-Girl run from a guy uh, at a convention, who was a huge Hobgoblin fan, and I, you know, he loved uh, what we did with Hobgoblin on Spider-Man back in the day. And I said, "Have you seen the recent Spider Girls? Because we've brought Hobgoblin into the MC2 continuity. It's Roderick Kingsley. It's the guy." And he goes, "But that—that's not regular continuity, is it?" I said, "It's MC2 continuity, but it's the Falco and me." And Sal doing Hobgoblin. What's the problem? <laughs> and he had no interest in it because it wasn't part of his precious six one six continuity. I think as I, one thing I've noticed in my comic book reading habits as I've gotten older is I'm less beholden to continuity. And I, I think I I grew up kind of in the the area era that would have been most influenced, I guess, by kind of the Gruenwald thought process of continuity matters a lot. And as I've gotten older, I care more and more about creative teams and following them onto the stories and just, you know, getting myself enraptured in what they do, um, as opposed to how does this all matter or how does this all fit? Who cares? It's about am I invested and am I reading a creator or, you know, viewing the artwork of a creator that I really enjoy? And generally speaking, if I'm, if I'm going towards the creator, I'm more likely to be happy than if I'm just following a character. Well, you may have opened the door to some, to some semantics there, Adam, because <laughs> uh, <clears throat> when you brought up Mark Grunewald, because there's continuity and then there's consistency. Mm. And those, th- those are two kind of separate but equal and kind of overlapping things in the Venn diagram of what fans care about, you know? Mm-hmm. And Tom, please jump in here because yeah. being, being editorial, you've probably had this discussion more times than I have. Well... And, you know, yeah. there have been other editors-in-chief that have come along and said, we're never going to let continuity get in the way of a good story. So they explode continuity, and you're waiting and waiting and waiting for the good story that's going to result from it. But consistency of character is something that I see as being a problem now, more so than continuity. Mm. Yeah. One uh, um, and I are, you know, you know, I, I hate to use the word maniacs, but uh, I, I have to use the word maniacs when it comes to consistency. Um, you know, certain characters speak a certain way. They behave a certain way. Their powers function a certain way. Um, and, you know, as an example, Spider-Man's Spider-Sense. You, you can, with, with very rare exceptions, 
you know, Venom, and I think Carnage, you cannot sneak up on Spider-Man. Um, a lot of other people felt that, uh, hey, you know what? Yeah, the spider sense is, is a problem, so we're just going to ignore it. Um, but uh, to me, you can't ignore it. That's one of the rules of the character. Um, you know, I think uh, one of the things that you know we do is whenever we're approaching a story, we try to take it from the character's point, the individual character's points of view. Um, which I think the modern way of doing it is is uh, the, the the writer is is kind of an outsider who is uh, you know kind of pointing at the fo- foibles of the characters. Mm. Absolutely. Okay, so we when we go into Anex number seven. So Tom, let, let's put it. Tom loved working on Anex. It was the most precious twelve issues of his entire forty-some year career. And uh, he, if he could, he would have lived there forever. But it just was not to be. And uh, let's go ahead. <laughs> so I have an interesting. I think I expanded on this last time with you, Ron. That um, Anex. I, I think I actually only first came to it a little bit late, uh, actually with issue seven and immediately bought up all the back issues. And it was because of my grandmother that I even found the issue at all. So issue number seven's always been one that kind of sticks out to me, uh, because it was my first and next issue. And again, the minute I read it, I was like, why haven't I been reading this from the beginning? I had been buying spider girl from the beginning, but didn't really have the cash at the time to buy a next. And I was like, no, I gotta, I gotta make this happen. I gotta buy them all. And so this is where kind of my next journey really started. Um, so I've always been partial to this issue because it kind of started that love of the series. So jumping, wow. <laughs> so uh, so I apologize in advance so that I wasn't buying the first six issues. Maybe if I had been, sales would have been better. Well, you made up for it. <laughs> exactly. Sales on A next were, were pretty good. Were they? Um, okay. Well, yeah. Uh, you know, when, 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 when we started this whole MC2 project, we were originally only supposed to do six issues of each of the each of the titles, and then they decided to do twelve issues. Um, and 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 then they decided to do a second year of them, uh, but they wanted you know different titles because mm. uh, we were supposed to be a different a whole different distribution thing. And I remember at one point we were discussing you know which title. They decided one title we're going to keep on publishing, and we kept looking at the sales. And Anex and Spider Girl were very close to each other; both both were selling very well. And we had to decide which one were we going to keep, which one were we not going to keep. And um, we decided to keep Spider Girl because Pat was drawing Spider Girl, and we were going to launch another title called The Buzz. Um, That's right. As one of our monthly books. And, uh, Ron, you know, since Ron and I developed the buzz, we figured, okay, we'll put Ron on the buzz. And and that's why we decided that uh, Anex ends with 12 issues. Um, But, you know, flip the coin the other way, 
and um, maybe we'll, we would have had 13 years of Anex instead of 13 years of Spider Girl. Who knows? As, as a pure conjecture, do you think if Anex had been the one to kind of survive, would you have brought in Mayday to keep her story going in some way? Probably, because we brought the, <laughs> the Anex characters over to Mayday every once in a while, so. Yeah, you know, probably. <laughs> yeah, Mayday still would have guessed in the buzz and all that kind of stuff, sure. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so, that was always the original model from like when when the Hulk was canceled back in the day after his first six issues. Mm. That's the game plan, okay? You keep the character interacting with the rest of the Marvel Universe. You let people know he's there. You let the, the people get still get to know the character through guest appearances and, uh, you know, Still build, still work on building the popularity of the character. That's why A Next later did get miniseries because they they stayed constant and the readership interest was there and it was worth taking a shot, you know. So moving moving into issue seven itself, so it opens up with kind of a splash of uh, a vision of the team. So a question for you, Ron, from an artistic standpoint, when you are putting together an image like this where, you know, kind of showing your heroes defeated, how, how do you kind of put together the choreography of how you kind of lay the characters out? It sounds like a very pedestrian question, but like it's a very effective image. It's very, you know, really grabs the reader, grabs the eye. How do you kind of lay out how that you, how you put something like this together? Well, without pulling it out, we're talking about the after the fall? Yes. Splash page? That's right. Okay. Uh, the, the one thing, it, it sounds weird given the... Uh, the subject matter, but the, the one thing I remember wanting to do in that that might have been a little different if you were doing Justice League or the regular Avengers was something we talked about in the last session, Adam, is that they were, as much as the, the, the Cole Tiger had recognized that the original Avengers were a, a team of superstars who abandoned, uh, occasionally uh, banded together in common cause, but that this team seemed more like a family. Mm -hmm. Uh, because of their youth and because of their connection and because they were all greenhorns, you know, they, they formed very strong friendships as well as their, their team bond. And, uh, so the, the, the one thing I remember kind of building that image around was the fact that, uh, Thunderstrike is laying on J2, isn't he? Yes, he is. Are you looking at the image? Because I still, I, I could pull it out, but I'm trying to do this from memory. Uh, you, and you got it, yeah. I, I remember kind of that being the first thing that occurred to me was having some contact between the characters as if, you know, one was trying to help the other up when the other one collapsed or, you know, that there was a con that still keeping a connection between the characters uh, being important to me in that, in that sequence, in that scene. But, uh, you know, beyond that, there's I, I, what Crimson Curse is in the foreground, and I tried to give some depth of field with the background and and the wreckage of a city and all this kind of stuff. So, I mean, for the most part, it was just you know trying to do some post-apocalyptic thing. But, I mean, it's been done so often in, in comics that you know we we were kind of fighting the trend of the post-apocalyptic uh, background and everything. So, uh, it, you know. Those come easy to comic book illustrators. We just uh, start busting up buildings. You know? <laughs> but uh, but that, yeah, I, I enjoyed that shot for that reason. The fact that there was that physical connection between Thunderstrike and, uh, and, and J2. Mm -hmm. Now, one thing that I found... And I had just... 
Oh, sorry. That title came from, a, there's a play called After the Fall that I had just seen locally here in Pittsburgh as we were plotting that issue, and it, we knew it was going to be about the last days of the Avengers, and I threw it out to Tom, and he went, oh, that's good, and I lettered it in, and there we go. So That's awesome. Again, drawing from life. <laughs> So a question about that shot as well. One thing I thought that really helps uh, kind of make it pop is that um, the sides of the image are, are, it's kind of a weird kind of, I, I, I'm trying, I'm grasping at words to kind of describe it, but instead of just having like the image and it's like flat lines, you have kind of like a waviness, I guess, to kind of show that it's a vision or that it's, I, I'm just curious what kind of led you it's to It's a vision, of, yeah, it's gooey. It's like, it's like liquidy yeah. or something, yeah. And you're right, it was just to, uh, even though you wanted it to have the shock value of what's in the image, we also wanted to play fair. And on the very next page, you find out that it's just, you know, even in the copy, you find that somebody's describing the scene. So it was, you know, it was one of the visions that they had when she was down in the basement. So, right. uh, yeah, I was just trying to play fair with that, to tell you the truth. And, it, you know, it looked kind of cool. I mean, there's a lot of things we do in comics just because that could look cool, you know. <laughs> So you have the new villain in this issue, and it's uh, Ion Man. So who came up with the name first? Uh, that was one of the uh, ideas. I mentioned Mr. Rich Anazeski in our last session. That's right. And one of the ideas he had for uh, for mainframe when we were coming up with the future Iron Man was to drop a letter and call him <laughs> Ion Man. And I didn't think it was appropriate for what we were trying to do, but I, it stuck with me, and I liked it. And he had, uh, it's, and a lot of the costume detail came from a, a design that he had for a mainframe, with a character that became mainframe's uh, chess piece. And I, there was a lot I liked about the design and uh, found a use for it later on. Uh, so Ion Man pretty much came quite a bit from... From uh, from Richie Anazeski, I, I just kind of threw some elements together. I was I kind of did the stitching, but uh, a lot of the individual ideas came from Rich. Where did the uh, the color palette of a green come so from? So if Ion Man ever gets his own movie, <laughs> you can play this in court to get Yan his royalty check. <laughs> uh, where did the, where did the green come from? Uh, you don't like green. You got a problem with green? No, what, I'm just, in, just curious. It's, 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 it's striking. It definitely uh, stands out. You know that out. green is evil in the Marvel Universe? Come on, That's read true. Spider-Man for crying <laughs> out. Come on. Main characters are primary colors. <laughs> Villains are secondary colors. Come on. There you go. There you go. And he's only one color because, the, you know, it, it actually during this period of time was one of the one of the periods where I was very influenced by the design aesthetic of Bruce Timm from the, that we talked about before, from the DC Batman Superman cartoons and everything, sometimes to the point of despair for Tom, because he was always prompting me to just do my straight comic stuff, because uh, mostly he would see it in design sketches. He would see, because I would try to keep the design sketches as simple as possible, so I knew the design worked. I didn't. I never wanted to hide the design of the costume or the character behind musculature and body shape and things like that. I always wanted the design to work on a basically on a mannequin. So a lot of the design stuff that Tom would see would be this really simplified Bruce Tim type stuff, and 
I can remember a couple times Tom said, you know, in all in all honesty and in all fairness, you know, he said, you're not going to draw him this way in the book, are you? And I went, no, 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 <laughs> just for the design thing. Uh, but I was, I think I mentioned before, I was very influenced by the simplicity of animation and the, the, the shapes, the design shapes of the faces and the heads and things like that that, uh, that worked. You know, I mean, it worked for J2. I think it worked for Ion Man, you know, for characters like that uh, to play with, uh, make sure that the shapes are distinctive and the silhouette is distinctive. And uh, he was definitely a character that I think that benefited from that, you know. There was some talk about even holding his his body, his arms and his lower torso and legs in a color hold because he was just supposed to be contained energy. Mm. But uh, I, I'm not a big fan of color holds unless there's a really, really compelling reason to do it. I I think it uh, if it's not done well, it can it can pull you out of the uh, you know pull you out of the story and and it. it they use it in so many different ways that it's, it's like, well, it looks like it's a hologram. It doesn't look like it's in the same shot as everything else. It, it it violates the reality of the panel because everything else has a black line around it. Why doesn't that, you know, that kind of thing. Mm. So uh, I'm just happy to forego color holds, even though we did think about it. You know. Okay. No, it's interesting you you bring up the idea of you know kind of this uh, the simplicity. So when I look through this issue, you draw Iron Man in his current costume at the time, which feels very busy and not nearly like a simple design. So what was that like to kind of have to do Iron Man the way he was at that point in the regular books? Uh, I guess in terms of kind of keeping a visual continuity, um, did you find it kind of frustrating because it's not a simple kind of design for Iron Man? It does have a lot of kind of extra added onto it that may or may not be important. what you just said <laughs> I mean anytime I, anytime I have to do like the, the most modern take on a character for a commission or something it's, it can be very distracting because I feel so many of the new designs actually fight the the shape of the human figure and I, and I think comics as a medium was pretty much designed around the fact that you know the human figure is a dynamic element in and of itself so we shouldn't be working against the lines and the dynamism of the human figure. That's one of the things that Jack Kirby did so well. I mean, he he had such control over the dynamism of the fig- figure that he would turn the human figure into a design element in the panel by, you know, his his type of reality, his type of dynamic reality. And uh, so, yeah, I, I, when things get overworked and everything, I'm, I'm a stickler. I mean, I will use the reference and I will only complain a little bit <laughs> because we did want to set it in a particular time frame, you know? So, but that was, you know, one of those armors that had, I'm not even sure we got the color holds right because they had like, he had like glowy things on his collar and all that kind of jazz. And I'm pretty sure we got him wrong, uh, color wise, even without the color holds. So there's just so much overworking. The plumbing is just asking for those kinds of problems, you know, but, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, I can't say I, it was my favorite part of the job by any means. But, uh, you know, then I could go hide in mainframe. <laughs> That's true. 
So one of the highlights of this issue, we kind of talked about it before as well, is that you have uh, the kind of the first real shot of the Avengers coming back from, uh, sorry, the old Avengers coming back from their mission that kind of ended up leading to the uh, dissolution of the team. And it's such a highlight because you you imbue so much in like the horrified look on Hercules' face. You have uh, Hawkeye blinded and with a broken arm. Everyone's kind of slumping through. Um, what, what kind of the discussions did you guys have about how to visually impact these characters to show how through the ringer they had been put through? We talked about the fact that uh, we wanted to suggest they went with a small army uh, without having to actually do a George Perez splash page you know, or, or double splash page. <laughs> but we wanted to suggest that pretty much everybody who was an Avenger at the time went through and only this handful came back. Because in, uh, we were able to communicate that, I think, mostly through Jarvis's reaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the the one thing, I, the little sidebar I'd like to make right now, though, sir, is we were talking about Adam. We were talking about in our last session the fact of that repeating the the captioning mm-hmm. uh, with Jarvis saying, even as they went through the portal and all this kind of stuff, and, and God forgive me, I despaired. Yeah. Uh, the, the Jarvis captioning when they when the, the new team goes through as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that. We got the man who came up with that, who, who pulled that one off. I, I don't remember specifically that I suggested that in any way. That was Tom being a writer. <laughs> Do you know what we're talking about, Tom? Uh, uh, no. <laughs> well, when, when, with the thing he's talking about, when the team, when the old team goes through the portal, there is... A, uh, a wonderful set of captioning uh, from from Jarvis that says, uh, "How many times had I seen them rush off to combat? How often had they challenged impossible odds? And yet, even as they entered the dump portal that would instantly transport them to their latest battlefield, I instinctively knew that this time would be different. And God forgive me, I despaired." And then, is it by the end of the issue, or is it... No, I think it's, a, it's in a, no. an issue or two after this when they decide well, to actually go. We can hold off it, on that. Like, oh, yeah, like, like two pages, two or three pages later when they come back, you, you have Jarvis in the same position. Uh, you know, Yeah, what going. he's saying is he didn't realize that they would, they would suffer such a terrible defeat. defeat. And it was also your writerly uh, instinct to, I, I, and I remember discussing this with you before you actually wrote it, is Iron Man's line that appearances to the contrary, we managed to accomplish everything we set out to do. The Earth is safe, old friend. We, we won. Even though they look so devastated and beaten, you know, that kind of thing. And I remember very clearly that that was, you know, oh my God, you know, the they lost, and, and Tom goes, no, that's the whole point, Ron. You won. They won. Yeah. It just won at terrible, terrible cost, you know. So. Great stuff. It's one of the problems with war. <laughs> yeah, there's that. Yeah. There's that. But, yeah, at that point, Adam, we had pretty much, 
we, we had a pretty firm idea. We were a little, you know, second half of the run. We had a pretty firm idea of what our history was of the characters. We had already seen what had happened to Hercules as a tease of all of this. Mm-hmm. So we knew where he ended up. We had a fairly uh, decent idea of where we were going to go with, uh, with Ant-Man and the Witch, Ant-Man and the Wasp, uh, and with uh, uh, Scarlet Witch, because we had already teased all of that. Um, and I think we, we probably already discussed what was going to be the deal with, uh, with Hawkeye. So I was able to play into all of that and, and make sure that we were foreshadowing all of these different uh, eventualities in, the, uh, in that scene where we're cutting to everybody. And, uh, you know, I mean, of course, the Wasp is devastated because we lost Hank and mm-hmm. Hercules is crazy. And, <laughs> just trying to communicate what you guys what we've discussed and what we want to get get across to the reader and that's what they pay me for is to try to communicate all of that in pictures yeah but by this issue we already knew how issue 12 ended Mm. um you know we um we, we really had everything outlined out um which you know because we knew we, we knew we were, we were telling a finite story, so we, uh, that's one of the things I pointed out to Adam too. Is even in situations where you don't know exactly where it's going to go, you always want to pick the 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 shot or the mood or the dialogue that's going to leave yourself open uh, to decide those things that. As you go along, you always choose the scene that's going to give you the most legs and the most directions to go from any given place as well, you know, because there were a lot of lines in like the first issue and in the first couple of issues where we teased things about Latveria and and Atlantis and all this. We didn't know specifics, but we knew, boy, that that'll be a story. (laughs) That could be a story. Get there. That kind of thing. And uh, but, but yes, you're right. By the time we got to issue seven, we had a pretty good idea of where everything was wrapping up. And at that point, I just remember being nervous that we had come up with something that would uh, meet the hype. <laughs> we were even getting letters from people that are going, whatever drove you know. Now you're saying Hercules was driven crazy by whatever happened, so you better have something. <laughs> and I remember thinking as we were, as I was penciling the issue, as we were getting into those issues, I was thinking, boy, I hope, I hope we have something too. <laughs> I hope we have something, you know. And uh, that's one of the reasons why we came up with what we came up with is, you know, I mean, who can, who could give the Avengers the the, the worst battle ever? And the answer was the Avengers. So you know, that's kind of what we came up with. <laughs> A question for you, Tom, about uh, this particular issue. Um, you, you seem to use a lot of really fun um, uh, sound effects for the battle between Ion Man and Mainframe. Um, and the letter actually did a great job of kind of mixing up even some of the typefaces between you know two different words that created the sound effect. Um, do you, do, who kind of came up with the sound effects kind of uh, sounds? Was that just you, Tom, or was that in collaboration with Ron? Or and how much fun it is is it to come up with these, or is it just kind of a pain in the ass? A lot of times it's a pain in the ass, <laughs> um, but uh, you know, sometimes when Ron's penciling something, he'll put a sound effect in there, 
and then you know, as, a, as when the time comes to script, you know, I'm looking at it, trying to figure out is that the right sound effect? And I'm, you know, making all these weird sounds in my office, uh, you know, kerspwat, <laughs> you know, swack, uh, you know, and just trying to see if they sound right. Um, and sometimes I'm rewriting a sound effect four or five times to get it right. Oh, really? Um, and, and even then, I, I, he, it, it, what's funny about it, Adam, is he actually does have to include them in the script for the letterer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and and this would be a great time to mention Jim Novak, who is my one of the best letterers in the business, especially for the display stuff and everything. Oh yeah. Um, in fact, he's at the very. You, you got your Artie Semics and your Sam Rosens, but in in the time we were working in comics, there was Jack Morelli and Jim Novak were the two best letterers in the in the business, in my opinion. And uh, you know, when we were putting the MC two books together. Uh, I actually, just because Tom was the editor on those books, he was able to say, you know, well, do you have any any preferences? And I said, can we get Bob Sharon and can we get Jim Novak or Jack Morelli? And they were pretty. That was pretty much our team on the MC Two books, wasn't it, Tom? Yeah, and Janice Chang too. Janice Chang on Spider Girl. That's right. She yeah. was already on Spider Girl. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But boom. The overuse of W's, that's Tom's sound effect. Anytime you see more than one W in a sound effect, that's Tom. <laughs> that's one of his L's. That's too funny. Oh, come on. <laughs> um, before we move on from the issue, I just wanted to uh, point out, Ron, so um, this is obviously the issue with the big reveal about who and what mainframe really is, and you have a great way of kind of um, experiencing this for the reader and for the main uh, and for the character of Stinger, in that you actually have his having multiple bodies being shredded by Iron Man. So it's a very visual way of kind of, of revealing the secret. Um, how much fun, first of all, was it to show many different ways that Iron Man could destroy Mainframe's armor? And also, was it a pain in the ass to kind of draw a heap of Mainframe bodies uh, with them fighting above it? Yes. <laughs> yes. I, I did not enjoy the cover or that half splash. Uh, or any time I had to draw multiple mainframes, but it's one of those things, you know, you, you come up with the story idea and then you got to pay it off. But there was really no way to tell it without showing the pile of bodies, you know. <laughs> uh, and it, it was a lot of fun. I mean, I, that's one of the reasons why we wanted to just create a new character like Ion Man, who would just be able to, through his established power, would be able to do that, you know, would be able to just slash across with his arm and cut through a, a robot body, you know, and things like that. And then in a way, just make short work of these things. And it was, I, I don't know who came up with the original idea, but, but by gosh, I, it was, I, I thought it was a terrific sequence and I thought it worked really well. It was very powerful mm-hmm. because you know, we still at that point had people guessing who was in the armor. Mm. And, uh, you know, there were a lot of different, guesses, mostly the ones that we talked about in story, you know, uh, we never talked about Jarvis. I remember there was a, one of the guesses was that Jarvis was in the armor. Yeah, um, that, that was a very popular guess. Yeah. Um, but the other, the other ones were, you know, that it was somebody related to Jim Rhodes or, or Tony Stark. And we even brought that in, in story. But, uh, you know, I'm, 
I'm hoping that by the time we got to the reveal that there were people that were surprised and enjoyed it, you know, and, and got a kick out of it. Yeah. So, so if we, what you can do, cross your fingers. <laughs> if we move on to the next issue, so we have a kind of a, a classic trope of, uh, you know, the, the small characters traveling inside a robot. Obviously, this happened back in the Avengers uh, with the, the Vision back when. So was that kind of the inspiration for this to kind of do an homage to that or is it, did it just come out of general story ideas? memory Tom? I, I, I think it, it it was um, inspired by the time that Ant-Man went into the vision I'm pretty sure that that's where it, you know where it came from and, and we've seen this thing uh, there's been a couple of movies about that sort of thing where you know somebody travels inside a body which is probably where they got that vision story from mm-hmm. yeah it was because the, the, the original one was like Fantastic Voyage or something so, uh, the movie yeah. with Brock Kelp but uh, yeah, and I think Roy's title for the other one was Journey to the Center of the Android or something like that but uh, <laughs> yeah the fact that it was Scott the fact that we involved Scott and wanted to bring Scott in for it and everything it was definitely influenced and inspired by uh, by that original issue of the Avengers sure yeah now in this issue but it also was a wonderful way to finally get uh, Scott and Cassie together on a mission so we could you know deal with their dynamic a little bit more and everything which is always worth doing is, is finding ways to mix up your characters and get as many different dynamics going as possible mm-hmm now, a question for you, Tom. So, I mean, obviously you had used Scott Lang during your Fantastic Four run. What was it about Scott Lang that always intrigued you and interested you in terms of using him and then using him, obviously, here uh, as, a, as a father? But uh, originally in Fantastic Four, what, what kind of led you to bring him into that book? Um, well, uh, in Fantastic Four, I wanted to get a, a science guy, um, but I didn't want to get... You know, another Reed Richards. Uh, and I always liked Scott because, you know, he was kind of a goofball. He, he, you know, he could do all the, the science stuff, but, you know, you always had had the hunch that he was doing it with his tongue in his cheek. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. And uh, I, I always loved the relationship he had with his daughter. I thought that was a, a terrific relationship that the, uh, I think it was a, a Dave McElhaney and um, Bob Layton had come up with. Yeah. Uh, uh, so. McElhaney and John Byrne. And Layton John Byrne, did, all right. Layton did not contribute to the story on the uh, Scott Lang Ant Man. Oh, okay. But I, I, I just know that personally, so I thought I would interject that. Well, <laughs> if Ron says okay. it, it has to be true. <laughs> Well, somebody else, uh, no, I'm absolutely correct on that one. I, I would uh, I would put money on that one. The other thing, though, that I get credit for something that I don't deserve credit for is that the Ant-Man suit that Scott uses in this, I've gotten credit for redesigning it. That is not the case. Uh, that that is That suit is stolen wholesale from the one that Paul Ryan designed for him in Fantastic Four. <clears throat> the only thing I did was change the color scheme from from red and blue to red and purple, so it would kind of line up and look cool next to Cassie. 
Got it. Uh, but that's that's the suit that uh, Paul designed. I don't think I made any changes to it at all, to tell you the truth. Hmm. Now, in this issue, we get to see um, uh, there's uh, you know some some visions that are happening underneath the, the mansion, and so you do get to draw a pretty cool a blood axe. Um, what was it like, kind of revisiting that character for this? I mean, I, I really, even more recently, we've had that experience. And uh, anytime you get to draw these characters, I, I mean, I, I go ahead and pull out the reference. I don't just try to do it from memory and everything because I know there's, I wouldn't be, it wouldn't be as accurate. But uh, yeah, it's always fun to do that. And anytime we could connect what was going on in Kevin's life with his, with his dad, uh, you know, we talked about the, uh, the blacklight issue. No, that hasn't happened yet, has it? No. Has the black light happened yet? No, that's the next no. issue. That's the next issue. We'll wait till we get there for that. But anytime we <laughs> could tie in the current, the current, the future continuity with uh, what, what Kevin had experienced with his dad as Thunderstrike, it was always a great joy. So that was another one of those connections, you know, that uh, Blood Axe would have been his boogeyman because... Uh, it was, you know, the the fight with Blood Axe ultimately is what led to Eric sacrificing himself. Mm-hmm. In this issue, you also draw... Uh, oh, sorry, go ahead, Tom. Oh, no. I, I, I think it, it was important to us because, you know, with, with A-Next and the whole MC2, we were you know, dealing with, you know, legacy characters, and it was different from other legacy characters in that, you know... You would you would think seen Thunderstrike a few years earlier. You you'd seen Iron Man and Captain America and all the other characters. Where most of the time when, when you're dealing with a legacy book, either either the characters didn't really exist previously, or they were, you know, from the golden age of comics, where nobody was really all that familiar with them. Mm-hmm. But you know, we were doing a legacy you know, legacy characters with characters that were still on the newsstands. Yeah, and we were, we reiterated, you know, we talked about earlier, Adam, the fact that we tried, when we sat down to decide who the, to form the team, our intent was to use as many existing characters, you know, uh, young people, young characters like Kevin and Kathy and, and, uh, uh, and characters that already existed as young people. We made the determination to try to use as many of them as possible as our legacy characters as a, as a real direct tie to the Marvel Universe. One reason being that we were only dealing 16, you know, 15 to 16 years into the future, and the other being that, you know, why not? <laughs> These <laughs> characters are sitting right there. Let, let's do it. I mean, the whole What If Spider-Girl came out of, you know, all the stories that Tom was involved in telling at the time with the pregnancy and everything, so... You know why wouldn't we use pre-existing characters uh, as our uh, as our jumping-off point? So, I, but Tom's right; it was a unique situation in that we were doing legacy characters where the readership was very, very aware of who they were the legacy of. You know that it was all happening concurrently. So, mm-hmm. 
in this issue, one thing I always liked is that you have um, when, when they're kind of fighting these other visions, you have uh, two different versions of Wonder Man show up that uh, fight with Thunderstrike. Um, which which version did you kind of prefer to draw? Was it the kind of old school uh, Wonder Man or the kind of leisure suit Wonder Man? I, it was fun drawing the leisure suit guy because I never really had a chance to do that. I have to profess uh, fondness for the original green and red outfit. I, uh, that was, I needed to put him in there, you know. I mean, we have a couple other versions of him in the backgrounds on a few panels, but uh, the choice for me for the featured ones were the original outfit and the, uh, and the safari jacket because uh, those were the two primary ones for me. Uh, even though I think at the time, the, some of the ones that are in the background uh, were actually more the ones that were being used at the time in the current continuity. Because mm-hmm. uh, I think it's sleeveless with the big, with the, the black outfit with the, the big W on the front and everything. <laughs> and that one's in the background, uh, caught up in vines by uh, Crimson Curse and such. But uh, yeah, that was me. Just I, I picked my two favorites to feature uh, as far as the, the fight went. Yeah. Now, at the end of the issue, you, you have uh, the, the team finding out that uh, Scarlet Witch has actually been in this pod underneath the mansion. So kind of along the, along the lines of my question before about having to draw the more modern version at the time of Iron Man, um, the costume here is obviously the one that George Perez would have designed for the Avengers book that was at the at this point in time in the late 90s. Um, did you find, again, that more of a, a, a pain because there's so many little details that George added to the costume as opposed to just the, the old school kind of more streamlined version? Not for that reason. I, I, the only thing I didn't—I mean, it was—it was a decision that was made purely for the storytelling, the visual storytelling of it, to make it very clear that it was uh, the Scarlet Witch and everything, because it, it didn't make a lot of sense to me that she would necessarily be in costume uh, to be part of this situation where she was, you know, plugging this dimensional hole. I mean, one would think she'd probably be in some kind of, you know, jumpsuit with life support cooked into it and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> so, I mean, it was very, you know, pardon the term, comic booky to have her in any costume at all. But it was kind of called for for character identification. And again, yeah, because we were tying into that, that the, we had just done the flashback that showed her in that costume and everything, it, it was kind of important that we tie it in, that she's been in that pod since that flashback, so yeah, she should be in the same costume. Even though, you know, putting her into suspended animation in a little gypsy suit was a little ridiculous. So, <laughs> Comics, right? I can recognize <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Those are the, the concessions we make for our comic book drama, for, for our comic book drama, absolutely. <laughs> Uh, any other thoughts on issue number eight from either of you? Of course, the first time we suggested uh, possible affection between Thunderstrike and, uh, and, and American Dream. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was very subtle, but it was there. And uh, trying to think if there was anything else that was worth... Oh, and we also uh, we got some nice letters showing, uh, that, that were saying that it's possible that uh, Blue Streak really is as good as she says she is. Because uh, I, I've always been impressed, and again, I, I would credit Tom DeFalco for this, is that he's really good 
at keeping track of who his characters are and where they are in the story and to use them in uh, ways that contribute to the narrative. And I, you know, as, as just penciling the story and everything, you know, they, they activate the module and the module's going to come out of his chest and all this. But, uh, you know, Tom and I, uh, you know, Tom came up with the idea, well, this would be a great place to use Blue Streak and her super speed powers to, you know, showing her run across town at super speed and be able to pull the thing out into the parking lot so it doesn't shoot up through the floors of the building and stuff. And I went, wow, that is, wow, that's cool. So, <laughs> and I could, I could also mention that uh, the gypsy spirit uh, uh, apparition that battles Crimson Cursedness was actually one of the designs that was considered for Crimson Curse. Oh. Uh, it was one of the names and designs that was considered for Crimson Curse, again, coming from Rich Yanizewski. <laughs> Anything for you, Tom? No. Nah. <laughs> 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 I, uh... <laughs> yeah, I, I don't remember coming up with that blistered uh, bit. <laughs> But, uh, uh, I mean, it, it all worked, and we were able to keep you know as many characters involved in the uh, in the storytelling as possible. So, can I, I? I should bring up. Can I? Can I bring it up really quickly? Because this is this is you. You can really play this up, Adam. Because Tom and I have very few moments of miscommunication or or uh, flubbing things and stuff. We used to joke about the fact that we agree on almost everything except that he's a Wayne Boring guy and I'm a Al Plastino guy when it comes to old Superman stories, you know, that kind of thing. But we had, we had a little bit of communication, and I'm going to have to ask, I'm going to have to put the onus on you for this question, Adam. Okay. As a reader of this title, okay? Yeah. Why, why was... Wanda, the one that was in that uh, in that apparatus. Oh God, uh, I don't remember. Okay, I, well, did you reread it before we did these interviews? I, I, I did. I, I did. You know, I, I reread it before we did the, the first one a couple of weeks ago, or whenever that was. Um, I've been reading so many comics because I just went away yeah, on vacation. It's been a couple of weeks since our first first round. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, I, I, I I'm. Please forgive me. I, I don't remember. Oh, that's okay. We'll talk about it again when we get to issue eleven. But anyway, <laughs> because uh, the, uh, we we got a couple other things to mention when, when uh, Tom remind me when we get to issue eleven that I get to embarrass you. But anyway, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure he wants to be embarrassed. He loves it. Listen, I, these are so 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 long ago. I don't remember it either. Why? Why? Wanda was the one. <laughs> did you find? Did you were, were you able to find your issues and read read them? I have them right in front of me right now. Oh, okay, okay. It, there was a very was, specific reason it was Wanda, and in issue eleven, you're told what the reason is, but I'm not so sure it came across for the readership. I, it was one of those things where you you don't want to hammer it. Because, you know, you're finding out in a very natural way why it was Wanda. But we also had, you know, we didn't have a lot, a lot of our characters saying why was it specifically her. And Tony Stark never specifically states why it was her. Uh, and we don't find, like I said, we don't find out until one line of dialogue 
in issue 11, but I'm not sure the readers were able to connect that to our reasoning. And I don't know. When Adam is reminded, he may, <laughs> he may go, oh, no, 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 that worked. You know, that kind of thing. So okay. let's go, issue 8. There's a lot of, there's a lot of pressure for that now. <laughs> So, so actually, so yes, I guess, there is on both of you. Yeah, for sure. So, so actually, we're so we're starting on to issue nine. So, this is the uh, the soldiers of the serpent return. Okay. It's uh, you got a lot more focus on uh, Thunderstrike kind of out in his own, which I liked. Um, and you introduce a new character known as Blacklight. Um, so, do you want to talk about her creation, Ron? Uh, I'm constantly in my quote-unquote spare time uh, playing with different Avengers that I liked and uh, different Avengers that might be fodder for second generation characters and things like that. I will mention, because we mentioned it a couple of times in the uh, in the original interview, that this is another uh, uh, homage cover. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have hers in front of you, I actually signed it, Ron and Sal after Marie, but Sal didn't recreate the signature in ink. So you can just barely see it on the control panel over by American Dream. You oh, can barely yeah. see the Ron and There it is, and yeah. It was after Marie Severn because it's, it's based on an Avengers cover where the Panther fought alone and they had the Avengers watching it on a monitor, so... Huh. I'm a big Marie Severin fan. She was, uh, early on, she was one of my first contacts with Marvel, and she was very positive and gave me a lot of really good advice. So, so I have a quick, anyway, I, well, I have a quick question. Uh, Blacklight. Sorry, can I, I just had, want to interject just really quickly, just because I noticed something. Uh, on the cover, it credits Williamson, but Williamson's not credited anywhere in the actual book. Was that just a mistake? Or? No, he didn't make it. That was a uh, mistake. That was the editor screwed up. <laughs> it, it could help. What can I tell you? <laughs> yeah, the editors put those those credits on the cover. So why'd you get it wrong, Tom? What? So why'd you yeah. get it wrong? Yeah, I was probably drunk that day. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> There you go, Adam. You're not going to get a better answer than that. That's true. I, I, I really don't. You know, I, I, you know, I'm I'm looking at these things because on a lot of these covers, I um I don't yeah I don't remember doing that 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 sort of thing putting those names on the covers like that. But I must have... Well, maybe it was in the office, because you always had uh, an assistant in the office, like Pete Franco or somebody like that, you know. Yeah. I think for the first year it was Pete. So we're blaming Pete, because he's not on this call, so... (laughs) I mean, obviously it got screwed up because Williamson was inking Spider-Girl at the time, and, you know, he had three books that he had to worry about getting the credits right on the covers. I mean, you know, the man's not... A machine. <laughs> it's it's actually it's well, it's funny because it looks like issue ten. There's no credits at all. Issue eleven once again uh, puts, puts Williamson. I really that I didn't realize. What? I'm just uh, I'm just issue eleven doesn't have any credits on. Huh? Uh, no, no, I'm saying issue ten has no credits, and issue eleven once again credits Williamson. 
issue 11. There's no credits on, on the cover. Let's see. Uh, no, 11, no, says, 11 says DeFalco, Friends, and Williamson. Yeah. It's 10 that has no credits at all. From what I'm looking at, anyway. 10 has no credits, and 11 has no credit oh. on the cover. Interesting. Then, So, you know, yeah. the, the digital copies... Yeah, have, they just threw up their hands. They screwed up. We're never going to do this again. Wait a minute. Because the cover that I... Is the cover that you have, uh, the, the direct-only cover... I have a newsstand cover, and there's no credits on the cover of... Oh, there's no credits on those two. 10 and 11 have no credits on the cover. And on, on 12, it just says DeFalco and Friends. Yeah, I'm, I'm, Listen, I, I am sure I did not did not put those things down there. Okay. No, I, I, you probably didn't. That's what I'm saying. But I, now I have this picture of poor Pete in the office. He got it wrong on one, and he said, screw it. I'm not putting them on anymore. <laughs> And then when he you got know, to so 12, went, well, there's room for it. What am I going to put on here? I'll just put the Falco in front. At least I'm sure of that. So, yeah. That's funny. Hey, so I'm uh, at the moment. So many times, you know, we. Huh? <laughs> I was going to say, at the, at the moment. So many times we had so much cover copy. Uh, sorry about that. Sorry, I was well, just going to say that the issue, issue 11 on the digital version does have the credits, but again, it's incorrect. So it's it's curious that it's not on the original print version that you have, but then on the digital version, it's incorrect. Oh wow, that's okay. amazing! <laughs> amazing, yeah. Because I'm looking at my my copy of Eleven, and it doesn't have any any creator credits on the cover. Interesting. Okay. So, I mean, the, and part of it is because on on Ten, part of it is because of the amount of copy there is and just there, there really wasn't any good room for it you know but uh, when it comes to cover copy though Tom weren't you the one that always felt that cover copy was a good thing because the longer you had to look at the cover to read the copy the better the chance that somebody would buy it yeah yeah I I, I just you know look at any magazine stand you know look at you know all the other magazines there's a ton of cover copy on it because it rift, the, the copy rivets the eye, and the longer the, the reader is staring at that cover, the bigger chance you have of, of them picking up that magazine. Um, I think it's a, a mistake to uh, just put artwork with no cover copy on there. We, we want to excite the reader's imaginations, make them feel that their lives will be incomplete forever if they don't buy this book. <laughs> When this when the soldiers of the serpents return, Thunderstrike fights alone. At least until we introduce uh, the all new superstar who eventually joins up with them. Hey, come on! I, I'm not complaining. No, I'm me either. It's okay. great. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we're, we're, we haven't got to it yet, but on issue ten, well, we'll get to it when we get to it. Okay, we're, what are we on? We're on issue nine now. You were asking about Black Light. I was. Um, I, I just, uh, I thought it would be interesting. Uh, the, the power set came with the name, and, uh, you know, the design to me was uh, very obviously based on uh, the, 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 the Captain Marvel of the time. Mm-hmm. And we were pretty, I thought, kind of obvious, but again, we, we didn't really try to hit people over the head with it. 
we introduce three supporting characters uh, on uh, early in the story that there is Holly Halpern, Jamisa Grant, and Kendra Freeman. And we figured our readers would know who we were talking about, and most of them did. Uh, when Blacklight showed up, they were, they were able to put two and two together. Uh, if you had a passing awareness of what was going on in the uh, Avengers comics at the time, uh, so we, you know, it was usually uh, flattering when people got it. We didn't really want to spoon feed them, so we didn't do a scene where Kendra Freeman runs into an alley and becomes Blacklight. But uh, at the time. Uh, uh, Monica in uh, Captain Marvel in the Avengers books was sparking a bit with uh, what was he an FBI agent or a cop named uh, named Freeman? Yeah, I think he wasn't he the um, the liaison for the Avengers. Or am I thinking of uh, someone else? I don't know if he was at the time or not, but it was. Uh, I, I, he, I know he was being handled in the Roger Stern issues and stuff. Okay, uh, so that's. What we were suggesting is that uh, she was the daughter of uh, of Monica and that gentleman. Hmm. Now, in terms of the, the visuals, like you have a lot of fun with like the different constructs she builds, and then at the end she does a you know a giant uh, a giant hammer. Um, how much fun is it to kind of do something like that? That's using constructs like I mean, the most famous one obviously in comics is obviously Green Lantern. But what is it like to kind of kind of play up the different ideas of what this character would be projecting and coming up with and how much of that is just you artistically or is Tom kind of feeding ideas of what this character might be thinking of that then you can then create the visuals for I think we I think we talked about the fact that it would be that we'll keep it basic because we were trying to suggest and I believe she even says in copy in dialogue that she's kind of new at this so she's being kind of literal with her constructs you know but I, I always loved Green Lantern and, and the bits they did. I even did the boxing glove in here, you know, <laughs> where she's knocking guys with a boxing glove. So when they teamed up with Thunderstrike and everything, uh, you know, Thunderstrike even says, what do you say we team up and drop the hammer on these mooks? And so she uses the most obvious hammer given that, you know, it's Thunderstrike. And I think he says, I love the way you think, lady, or something like that. <laughs> but... Uh, it was, you know, it was a lot of fun to do those powers and everything, and it was something a little different. You know, I wanted to make it different from Captain Marvel. I didn't want to make it just like Captain Marvel, only blue, you know, that kind of thing. So we came up with the black light constructs and everything. Uh, and again, it was a, here we are using color holds at, uh, at my my request, and uh, we managed to do it without any without anybody screwing up. <laughs> we did it. We, I think we used them effectively in this case because they, they are supposed to be separate from the, the given reality of the, uh, of the panel. But this, also, this issue also has one of my favorite sequences in the entire run. Uh, maybe you were going to ask about it, Adam. I don't know. Which, which one in particular is it? Is it, is it when the Avengers leave? Uh, the, 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 it's actually a one-page sequence where... Uh, Kevin and uh, and Maria are trapped under the rubble. Oh yeah. And he, I, I, this is one of those sequences that means a lot to me because Tom pretty much let me write it uh, because I, I had come up with the idea and I just wanted something that would bond them from when they were kids. Again, calling back to the fact that the reason we used Maria's priestie is because 
Walt had created this family that was, you know, really tight with Thor and Sigurd Jarlson and and, uh, and Eric Masterson. When, when we introduced Eric, we used Jerry Sapristi as the entree character for Eric Masterson and suggested several times that Eric knew the family really well. And if you look at what, you know, the family that Walt created, Maria was the one that would have been closest in age to Kevin at the time. So... There was no reason not to continue to use that connection. That would be one of Kevin's connections to New York now that he's back from California. And, and we even suggest that I believe at one point that he, he crashed with the Sapristis when he first got to New York before he found his own place, you know, things like that. So, mm -hmm. uh, again, we're using the, using the tapestry of the Marvel Universe in the 616 and, and trying to use it as effectively as we could in the, uh, in the MC2. Uh, but yeah, that the, the sharing of that 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 secret, you know, that she never told the secret, and because he was going to lay a bigger one on her, uh, was something that I was looking forward to exploring more. As you know, obviously Maria was introduced as a possible romantic interest for Kevin, and uh, Tom even played with that a little bit more in um, in the American Dream miniseries with uh, who worked on the American Dream miniseries with you, Tom. Um, Todd, uh, oh gosh. Was it Knock? Todd? Yeah, Todd. Yeah. There you go. Todd, she showed up in that, in that miniseries too. Uh, uh, but, um, you know, so it was something we were hoping to play with. And of course we used it to great advantage in the next couple of issues when we, when we get to the, uh, parallel earth as well. But, uh, yeah, I mean, this was a, a fun issue for me because we were calling back to a lot of things from the Thunderstrike series and, and uh, recognizing the potential of Kevin as a solo character and everything, which, you know, I, I would be a very easy sell for something like that if it ever came up. But, um, uh, so yeah, this, overall, this was a lot of, this issue was a, a lot of fun for me. And uh, the using the serpents, uh, was something that Tom and I had talked about early on uh, in the uh, Cold Tiger issue and everything. And, and one of the reasons I wanted to use them is because it was still current in news even as it is today. I mean, it, it's stunning how white supremacy and this the, the ludicrous mindset hangs on and, and resurges from time to time and has to be addressed in society you you would think it would be one of those things that would like just go the way of tv but it, <laughs> it doesn't you know and i wanted to recognize that that it was still something that was you know uh but again as i mentioned that tom was always very big we would never use the same term we would come up with a new name instead of the, you know the lady hawks would be the lady hawks not just the falcon um he, he also didn't want to do Sons of the Serpent. He did Soldiers of the Serpent. One, to make it clear they were more militant, and two, because it was a separate uh, trademark. So there you go. <laughs> uh, with regards That's to this... That's why he's legendary. Yes. <laughs> with regards to this page, it's interesting seeing the shot of, um, of Thunderstrike kind of throwing all the rubble off of them. It's interesting that you had a very similar shot in the recent uh, Thor 10-pager that you did with Tom when it was Eric, uh, though, kind of throwing off the rubble at the same time and kind of having his Spider-Man moment. Well, you don't have your Thunderstrikes in front of you, do you? I do not, actually, not at the moment, no. 
I guess, yeah, it's not the first time you've used I this motif. It's a deliberate homage of myself. That shot of Kevin is taken from a shot I did of Eric in the whiteout issue when uh, the plane engine falls on him. Oh. And he's buried under it. And a half splash pushes the, the 747 engine up off of him. I did a very deliberate uh, homage to that shot for Kevin in this scene just as a connection between father and son, which I'm sure only the most rabid Thunderstrike fans would recognize <laughs> if there are any of those left. Um, One thing that, uh, <laughs> after speaking with you guys, and, and again, getting the sense that you guys kind of knew where you were going and you had a general sense of the beats, it's interesting to see how much of the 11 issues that Thunderstrike actually appears in here was all about kind of him confronting his father and the images of his father and the legacy of his father. And then eventually coming face to face with a version of his father and you play it up so much in this issue and it's really organic. And then it means all the more when you get to him actually confronting an evil alternate version of his father in the next couple of issues. Now, Tom, this... Now, I have the printed version. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, okay, I, I've got the printed version of, of the book in front of me. And I know, Adam, you did the, the digital version. And, you know, one of my favorite pages is the one facing Ron's favorite page. Um, and that's the one where J2 is sitting down playing a video game and Mainframe comes <laughs> in and, and J2 invites him to play video games with him, which mainframe just doesn't even know how to relate to this. Is that your idea of a joke? And, he's, <laughs> and he says something like, uh, hey, you know, nah, come on. You're, you're, you're afraid that, uh, that that we're going to, now that we know that you're not human, that we're, that, that we're going to have a problem with that. But hey, we're all different in one way or another. Otherwise, we wouldn't be Avengers. <laughs> and, and you know, to me, it's, it is just so, you know, so purely Zane. And I don't remember if Ron plotted that scene or, or where that scene came from. It's such a good scene. I mean, what I, what I love about it, Tom, and it comes from the scripting, is that he's making a point that is 
very relevant to what mainframe is going through at that moment but he's it's not like he's suddenly super intelligent he's making it from his particular point of view as a 13 14 year old who is who has had the experiences that he's had for the last nine issues of a next and nine issues of j2 you know that kind of thing, and what that's what I love about it. It's it's not a point of view or a uh, a perception that is alien to who this character is. It, it works great, and yet it's still something that uh, mainframe needed to hear. You know, and uh, I love that. I love that a lot. That's mm-hmm. writing from character. Oh, that's what we're supposed to be doing, right? <laughs> right. That's why we. That's why they pay us the big bucks. <laughs> Uh, the grossly mediocre bus. Okay. <laughs> now, this issue, uh, to go back to what Ron was talking about earlier, this does, uh, at the very end, you have the Avengers kind of taking off into the portal, and you do have the echoing of the previous issue where you have the same Jarvis narration, which is a nice callback and kind of showing the severity of the moment that you, in the sense of impending doom, where you have this young neophyte team of Avengers going to, you know, confront the biggest of, uh, evil that the Avengers ever fought. Um, which is, again, it's really well done because you do have the deliberate callback. The imagery is exactly the same by Ron. It's a great mirroring of what we saw previously, and it just really it really works on every level. And I, I liked the way the, uh, again, through the dialogue, the, how the, uh, you know, I think I said in our, in our first conversation that I wouldn't have wanted to do this series without uh, Jarvis being a featured character. And he is desperately in the course of this issue trying to get a hold of Tony Stark mm-hmm. to get more information to protect his team, to let them know what they're in for. He knows it's bad, but Stark's the only one that can tell him exactly what's going on, and he's desperately trying to get a hold of Stark. And when he can't, he's trying, you know, his counsel is to not go. Uh, but then he also says, you know, excuse me if I've overstepped my bounds. And, uh, you know, that's one of the moments where I think it's American Dream comes right out and says, you're the heart and soul of this team. And uh, I like that a lot. I mean, it's it was it was a bit of character development and, and pushing that character forward that I was very proud of because, you know, Jarvis can, always, can also often just be used for comedy relief or, uh, you know, for a hostage or a victim or something like that and I was very happy to, to to push him push his character to the foreground and make him very important to this next generation mm-hmm. right Tom? absolutely <laughs> I, you know listen I, I just love where, where you know American Dream is giving him a, a goodbye kiss on the cheek um, you know you're and like you say, you're the heart and soul of this team and a very dear, dear man. Um, you know, we were going for an emotional gut punch there, and I think we succeeded. Well, those, yeah, those characters cared about each other, and it was, you know, they were, they were open about it uh, in a way that young people can be, you know. And uh, that's one of the things that I really enjoyed about it, too. It's one of the things I thought made it very different from uh, from the original Avengers, and you know, just to you know, not trying to take complete credit for being uh, super original or anything, 
it's far more what the Teen Titans always was. I, I grew up reading the Teen Titans, and you know, from the very beginning, because of their youth and because of their you know their connections, they their connection was always more personal than the Justice League, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And uh, I mean, I, I think that's the the, the you know really defined differences between the Avengers and the Fantastic Four, which is very obviously a family unit. And, you know, but, but our team, and I think, again, because I think it plays well with youthful characters, that they have deeper bonds. They, they, they make more immediate and much deeper bonds in common situations. You know, when they're thrown into situations together and they have a common bond, those bonds become very deep. And uh, that's who these kids were. I mean, they... They all became friends, and uh, you know, even mainframe by the end of it, and not just uh, not just colleagues, and not just teammates. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, any final thoughts on this issue before we move on to uh, issue ten, where we finally go into the uh, into the through the portal into the alternate dimension? No, not for me. Thomas. No. No, nah, I don't think so. So the the next, it, it's what I find so interesting about issues ten and eleven by you guys is that um, they are so jam packed with action and intrigue, and like you you really hit the ground running. There's so much in these issues. I'm actually surprised. Like it's one, it's it's reading issues like these that make me thankful to, that we have comics like this because modern comics. You would, the amount of story you get into two issues here would be like a year's worth of stories and not in a good way. Whereas you guys, like you have so much thrills and excitement and it's all well paced and it's, you know, it's just very exciting. And I'm just very thankful that we have comics like this that we can go back to and enjoy because you really get, you get your money's worth, you get your time's worth and it's just a lot of fun to read. Well, thank you, Adam. Yes. Um, that all comes down to the fact that Ron and I have poor attention spans <laughs> and somewhere along the line, we discovered that our attention span lasted about three issues. So, so we never wanted to do a story that would go beyond that because it became boring to us after. <laughs> so, you know, Ed actually is, is, is uh, there's a truism in there in the midst of his self-effacing uh, modesty. Um, because, you know, if, if we're getting bored, then the reader's going to get bored. So you want to change up the, the adversaries, you want to change up the locations, you want to change things up as much as you can. And in the absence of that, you want to keep the story moving. You want new information hitting them almost every page to, to move the story forward. And, you know, anybody that's not doing that, in my opinion, is not, you know, as you said, not giving you your money's worth. Because, uh, you know, I, I, you know it's, it's much more fun to work, to pencil a story where you're not doing too many scenes of exposition. You know, you want to get the exposition out of the way and you want to get going and you want the characters doing something to keep the pages that you're penciling interesting you know, and, and keep yourself involved and, and intrigued and, uh, and, and moving along, you know? So, I mean, it, it's all part of keeping the wheel spinning for these things that, that I get, uh, that again, I think translates into the uh, reader's experience as well. Mm-hmm. 
Um, looking at the first couple pages, so first uh, on the on the first major splash page. So I have questions for both of you. But uh, so Ron, first, when you're laying out a scene like this, where you know you have your characters now in a new alternate reality, how much time did you spend kind of designing what what we would be seeing in terms of all the billboards and all the you know the the different things in terms of setting the scene that this is definitely a different world? How much time did you kind of spend laying everything out, and how much of a conversation did you and Tom have about kind of how to how what this world would look like visually? Well, we knew what we were going what we were going for. We knew we were going for a world where the, the Nazis won World War Two, and that it was going to be a little more uh, metropolis looking, you know, as far as the old movie, not Superman's hometown. <laughs> uh, but for the most part, since it was Times Square. And there's a lot of neon and signs in the modern Times Square. It was an opportunity to do the obey, 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 and obedience, diligence, vigilance. And, and I came up with some of them, but Tom came up with most of them in the script because they're lettered by uh, Jim Novak. Uh, but, you know, Doomsday is coming, the Thunder Guard is watching, you know, things like that were, you know, things we talk about that it would be a totalitarian society where people have jobs that are moving around and have cars and all that kind of jazz but uh, but by the same token uh, they're repressed you know and uh, I did make like little attempts at making the cars smaller you know like uh, like World War two Europe and things like that you know uh, making little uh, acknowledgments like that and uh, you know mostly just trying to keep it feeling a bit. Uh, European. I, the, the one thing I, I don't know whether I did. I don't think I did it, but there's there's a business there on the on the right hand page called Reuben. And you know, given that the Nazis won World War Two, I don't know if Reuben sandwiches would be all that popular. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but there it is, right there. You know, apparently yeah. a thing. Uh, the one thing I did throw in there on the on the on the movie sign is Val Kilmer the Saint, because that movie was out at the time, and I thought, well, that plays wonderfully into the European aesthetic, and uh, you know because that movie took place a lot in Europe and everything. So I said, well, uh, that would be an interesting little touchstone that could still exist in that world, you know, that kind of thing. So, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, those those are the kind of things you try to think about as you're doing it. Is is what feels a little more oppressive, what feels... I mean, we even showed Dr. Doom's profile up there and everything that not many people would recognize him because we don't see his face that often, you know, mm-hmm. if at all. But, uh, and the, the dirigible up there in the sky and the, and the searchlights and everything, which, you know, gives you this sense of... Uh, of, of Germany in the 30s, you know. And, uh, so I was going for that kind of an aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Now, Tom, one thing I really like about this page and another one a little bit later on is how, uh, even though you are obviously dealing with like very, you know, um, a sense of foreboding and this is very like going to be a deadly mission or potentially a very deadly mission, and it's very dangerous. I like that you still keep J two very true to himself. Like in this in this splash page, you have J two being like, "Oh, so this is what an alternate reality looks like. Cool, can we go home now?" And then even later, when they're trying to explain how what an alternate reality is or what is going on here, they kind of use the Star Trek mirror universe. Uh, as a way of him kind of understanding what they're talking about. So I kind of like how you were able to inject humor and keep it true again to 
the character that J2 is a guy who kind of uses humor to deal with things. And so you lean heavily into him doing that because he would in this type of situation. Yeah, and, and some of it, some of it isn't so much that he's using humor to to deal with it. Some of it is he just doesn't really get it. Nod to our teamwork too, Tom, because what I remember about this scene is that I threw in the line about uh, you know he's saying grim and gritty sci-fi future, and Kevin turns and says think. Star Trek mirror mirror and he goes oh an alternate parallel earth got it and but then you took that and spun it out into the thing with mainframe Star Trek you aren't familiar with it on the contrary I am a huge fan <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, which was wonderful for the whole you know mainframe program that uh, you know at one point J2 even makes the comment I didn't think you liked anything fun. oh I think it's right here he says oh uh, you I didn't think you liked anything fun <laughs> but uh, you know again I suggest one thing and then Tom you know uh, takes takes the ping pong ball and knocks it back at me with the, something to you know and then and then and then <laughs> and that's how we that's how, kind of how we build these yeah well Come on, that's that's what we're supposed to be doing. There you go. Mm. How, how early did you guys know that you were going to have Captain America show up and having already like been had that he had stayed behind on this world years before when the Avengers came home? Like, how early did you guys know right away that yes, we're going to have him kind of show up, or like did you ever think that he might have just died in the alternate universe, um, or was it always kind of going to be decided that they were going to meet Captain America and that was going to be the true kind of moment for them to become Avengers and work with the the legend of Captain America? memories of that time I'm pretty sure that by the time we did the flashback that showed the statue we knew the cap was still alive yeah I, I honestly don't remember I'm sorry um, <laughs> it was 20 years ago Tom you're entitled uh, yeah. I, I'm sure we did uh, have the sense that, that cap would survive because there's something else that we were that happens in the course of this two-parter that we anticipated early enough that we were going, oh, and that would be a great way for this thing to happen. And it was something we were getting letters on that we didn't have a problem with, that we, you know, had had no issue with it, which is what I'm foreshadowing here is, uh, is Shannon getting a shield. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because we were getting letters about, uh, you know, get Shannon a shield and uh, you know we early on we're thinking well this this would be a great way to do that we can we can play this off and uh, you know so again you're always looking to try to continue to pull as many threads as possible into the fabric <laughs> to try to make something out of all these potential uh, story ideas and everything and, and, and shape them um I, I recently had a, uh, a private message conversation with a, a young fan who was making all kinds of connections between uh, what we ended up doing with uh, A-Next and the final battle of the Avengers and all this and what they did over at DC with 
the, the the Golden Age characters over there, and uh, I don't know whether it was in Infinity Inc. or what book it would have been in, but he was drawing all of these parallels and asked if it was deliberate, and I am completely unaware of all the other stories he was he was uh, citing. So oh, I, all I could say was, it's really interesting that all those parallels exist, but no, we were just kind of doing our own thing, and you know, uh, you know, uh, the the premise of a parallel world where the Nazis won. I mean, that's just that's sci-fi one hundred and one. You know, I mean, we weren't the first to come up with that idea. I mean, not the least of which was Star Trek, uh, probably the most popular version of it. But uh, you know, we we thought there was a lot we could do with Marvel characters in that situation. Uh, you know, the Red Skull and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, Hitler really wasn't the problem. You know, the Red Skull was. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if I asked you this before, Ron, but with, with Shannon's design, so obviously she has like the, the, the smaller kind of shield things that she can throw, etc. Was there ever a discussion very early on about having her have a larger proper shield? Or what was, like, how did you guys kind of decide to give her the smaller ones that she could kind of throw around? with Kevin not having the hammer is that, uh, you know, making them just carbon copies wasn't something we were interested in. We wanted them to have uh, something of their own that would make them unique and different from their forefather, from their forebearer, that would, you know, force us to do something different with them. Uh, And I actually liked the throwing disc idea. Um, It was something that that was kind of part of the no, the original nomad idea that, uh, or or the later nomad idea actually, that you know still stayed in the Captain America family, and it gave her a different visual when she was fighting. You know, Uh, she was still doing the stuff with the, you know, banking it off of things and ricocheting things and stuff, but it was different enough from the actual shield that it it gave her her own thing. But ultimately. You know, the readers were still calling for Shannon to get a shield, and, uh, you know, we figured if we could do it in a story way, then we weren't going to avoid it. You know, we weren't going to deliberately avoid it for any reason. Hmm. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it comes from wanting these characters to at least get up on their own two feet and and be unique in, in one way or another for, you know, for some period of time before we do anything else with them, you know. Hmm. Now, in this issue, we see a lot of the, you know, the uh, the alternate universe version of the Avengers, who are all kind of evil characters. Um, from a design standpoint, like, how much fun did you have kind of designing evil version of the Avengers? This was, it was a lot of fun, and it was one of the main uh, times uh, in the development of the MC2 that I called Enrich. And uh, many of the designs, uh, Iron Cross, uh, SS Agent, uh, were, I think, pretty much his. I didn't really do too much different on those designs. Uh, they were pretty much right off his, right out of his sketchbook. Um, and then he contributed elements to Pinsir. And uh, actually, I think uh, Donner was, to a large extent, Yans. Uh, I made a few little tweaks on Donner, but... Uh, but yeah, he really came through on a lot of these things. I just thinking outside the box, and of course, we were already at that point. We were on a monthly schedule 
when all of this started coming up. So it was a huge help to me to have him uh, working on some design stuff as I knew these issues were coming up and, and giving me time to actually pencil the books uh, and uh, and then have the designs right in front of me. So it was, uh, yeah, I mean, he's, he's a, an incredible uh, resource that I've been able to take advantage of from time to time. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I mean, a lot of these visuals, they really they really do a good job of kind of not just uh, channeling and reminding you of who they're based on, but also kind of showing how they're corrupted as well. So um, and they really work on the page and they set up a nice visual contrast to the members of A-Next as well. I thought so. I mean, we tried to, you know, that's the thing. We try to pay attention. Usually I design in color. Um, I... I don't leave that kind of stuff just up to the colorist on the fly because you do want to take into consideration, you know, uh, how it balances a team, uh, it balances out as a team. And uh, even with the, even with the bad guys, you know, I wanted to make sure that that happened. Uh, and you know, what, what you're saying about calling back to the original designs, usually if Yan came up with something, his thing was like completely original and I would add some element like on SS Agent, I'm pretty sure that his design from the neck down was pretty much what I used, but I went to the uh, headpiece that US Agent had at the time in Force Works, hmm. you know, and made sure that, 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 that I kept that design to call back to US Agent and, and make it clear that that's who that was from, you know, from our reality. So, you know, there were little tweaks that I was making along the way just to make sure that we had those connections to the original designs. When it came to designing the, you know, the Stormtrooper, so this is the Eric Masterson analog, um, how much thought kind of went into channeling and, and, and showing what that character would look like? Because obviously this is a bigger one. This is more important, not just for the team, but also for you guys because of how you worked on the original Eric. And obviously it means a lot to your book because uh, Kevin is now meeting an analog of his father and he has a lot of unresolved issues there. So how much or how difficult or how many different versions did you go through of designing what Stormtrooper would look like? I'm pretty sure. I think Ian made one pass at it, but I had a fairly decent idea of what I wanted to do. So I, I just kind of uh, connected it to some of the other design the aesthetics on the other characters. And uh, I, I don't remember, I, I don't think we needed to put as much time towards Eric as we did some of the other characters because that was a little more of a given. You know, I mean, one, we wanted him to be uh, very easily identified. And uh, so we didn't want to go too far afield with the, the, the four discs and all this kind of stuff. We just wanted to make it darker and more militaristic and everything. So that's, that's kind of what we did. I was happy with the, with the final look and the dynamic of the scene and all of that. I mean, it was, uh, you know, this was a lot of things were finally paying off. So it was a lot of fun to work on and it was a lot of uh, satisfaction in, in seeing things finally paying off that uh, for these issues so uh, I have great fun with this two-parter or I had a lot of fun with it and anytime we get to handle Captain America it's a it's a, a pleasure it's a, a gift and uh, you know and this was another situation like that that last page Tom scripting on that last page of Cap and his little speech and but then the A next response to it uh, you know that came from both of us I remember discussing that uh, with him and uh, and liner noting 
the the A next response, not the speech. That was all Tom and Cap. But uh, the A next response to it was, uh, you know, was part of the design of the page and everything. Was sir, no sir. So. <laughs> now, in this issue in particular, so I guess we'd already seen her in the uh, Ion Man issue. We also have a little bit more of uh, the character who will eventually be called Red Queen. Um, so we're not just on the on the new Earth, but we're also kind of touching base on both her her character and also we're seeing uh, Hawkeye and uh, Tony Stark are both back in the picture. Um, when you do flash back to these moments, so first of all, let's talk about Red Queen. Um, what, how did you guys kind of develop her character? Because obviously you're, you're seeding her appearance that would end up being an issue 12. Um, so how are you guys kind of working on who this character was and why she's this way? I mean, there's 
there's reason to believe that, you know, she's she's in a fairly decent place financially and business-wise and everything, uh, probably given uh, the, the allowances that, that Hank Pym made for his made for his kid. But, uh, you know, she still resents the Avengers for... Uh, it, it's a recurring theme, actually, because it was actually the uh, point of view of Dargo, of Argo, uh, with with Hercules and his resentment for what happened to his mother, uh, and losing you know the, the fact that his father abandoned them and everything. But again, Argo wasn't as extreme a character, and when he saw the situation that his father was in, he realized that he had spent a lot of years hating the wrong person. You know, hate, hating uh, hating a person for something that they had no control over. So. Uh, this was a slightly different situation. She, you know, she wanted, she wants revenge. And, uh, we find out in, in that later, later issue that, you know, the original plan was to just use the old codes to get into the mansion to make these kids realize they're not up to the job, that they're, that they, they shouldn't be doing this and they're not up to it because it destroyed the original team. But, uh, hope kind of has her own agenda. And, uh, you know, we see that because she's the one that acts more like the traditional villain. You know, when we finally do see Hank or Henry Jr., we, we, you know, we see that he's not he's not acting quite that way. He thought they were at a different agenda. So mm-hmm. now, this issue also uh, features uh, an alternate reality version of Maria who gets murdered by Eric. So Kevin's having a pretty bad day. Um, so he sees an alternate reality version of his friend who first helps them get murdered by an alternate version of reality of his father. So again, a lot of, uh, a lot of issues that you're kind of putting him through. Um, did you ever feel you were putting, uh, Kevin through too much or was it just where you needed the character to go? Uh, it's where we needed the character to go. And, and there's an old theory that, um, what you do to your characters, if you really love them, you're going to just keep dropping mountains of shit on top of them. <laughs> um, because that's what makes their lives interesting to the readers. You just keep piling on the garbage. Um, something else we got in there is... Uh, you know, it's called the Peter Parker Principle. <laughs> yeah. Um... You know, when, when uh, the uh, alternate Eric Masterson, he, he says, are you, are you another one of those copycats from, from the other Earth who underestimates me? And that, that line there is because um, everybody underestimated Thunderstrike and was constantly underestimating Thunderstrike. So stuck that in there just to, uh, you know, just because I was annoyed that everybody would underestimate Thunderstrike. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it's interesting. I mean, the that... next issue, we're, we're coming to the first two pages of the next issue are two of my favorite, uh, two of my favorite pages from the from the series too. The, the Eric interaction of Eric and the uh, the alternate Eric and the other alternate characters and stuff. I mean, I, it, it was it's so odd that we got to this alternate version of Eric. And yet, my affection for the character never waned. I mean, it, it, it was a different guy, but it was the same guy. And it comes through in the, in the course of the story that, you know, 
these these characters are not so different from their counterparts. I mean, the the one that's most different, of course, is uh, is Pincer, because as it's stated, he's he's freaking nuts. But uh, the rest of them are just dark reflections of who they are in the six one six given the different circumstance and, the, and and having grown up in that circumstance. Absolutely. Well, I mean, even even in the beginning of issue 11 where you have Stormtrooper talking, like you get to see that he's not necessarily the soulless person he looked like in the pre- previous issue, that he does have doubts. He does have like an, another softer side, which obviously plays into where we eventually see the character later in the issue when he does confront Kevin. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's a nice right. way of kind exactly. of setting that up. Exactly. And that, that I even love the get off my back, Pincer, you sadistic freak. I'll show you exactly how I feel about killing someone in cold blood. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And, and even SS agents thing about the stand on Stormtrooper, you want a cool Pincer, do it on your own time. I, I, mean, I would love to tell more stories about these guys. <laughs> I, mean, I, I found the, the character interaction great. And when Donner shows up, everybody defers to him. He's obviously you know, a godlike leader for these people. But when he says, is there a problem here, Eric? And Eric says, no, old friend, no problem here. So their history is in some way similar to what it was in the regular 616. Mm-hmm. You know, on, on some level, Eric got the Thunderstrike Mace in, in, in a similar situation involving Thor, and they have a similar bond to what Thor and Eric had in the 616. And I love that. I, I, I love that, just throwing that possibility out there that things aren't so different as you think they are, as different as they are, you know, because we're talking about a situation where all the main Marvel characters grew up in a world where the Red Skull and or Doctor Doom were in charge. That was just their reality. And I think Captain America says at one point, if you have enhanced abilities or you invent something enhanced or whatever, you've got two choices. You work for the government or you're dead. <laughs> I mean, so, you know, that's uh, okay. There's some choices there, you know. When, when you guys were kind of developing the fact that you were going to have th- these two issues with the, the you know, the, the um, ultimate reality characters, uh, you know, fighting against them, did you just, like, you end up using a relatively small roster and there's implications given in some of the dialogue that there used to be, like, a lot of these, there used to be, like, 200 of these guys. Um, How did you end up deciding on to use these particular ones and just kind of have the easiest analogs to the characters that we knew that would have that personal connection? And did you guys ever, dis- you know, discuss adding in anyone else? Well, I'm sure we discussed adding in a bunch of guys. Yeah, I I think we talked about some characters that we decided didn't make the cut. We we were looking for a a variety of of dynamics between our characters and their characters. Uh, You know, one being based on Scott, so it would be Cassie versus him. Uh, one, you know, uh, I, we didn't want to do an evil version of Captain America since Cap was actually, our Cap was actually there, so we had U.S. agent to use. So we did a, an evil version of John Walker. Um, uh, you know, Brandon was, you know, taking on himself, much much like apparently Hercules did, you know. Um, 
so there, you know, there was that aspect of it where we, we didn't want them all to be uh, the older characters. We didn't want them all to be just uh, doppelgangers of our characters. We, we wanted a mix so that we could uh, play with the different dynamics. And, you know, this, this actually, these two issues actually serve to help Cassie kind of come to uh, the, the end of an arc with her dad, too, because at one point, you know, she says, whatever issues I have with my dad are nothing compared to this gibbering maniac, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> but she also found some closure in cleaning his clock. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it kind of was a weird kind of uh, catharsis for her, you know, and uh, those kinds of uh, dynamics were a lot of fun to play with. Now, I think we've talked about this before, Ron, but how early, or did you always know that at some point American Dream's hair was going to be cut off? No. <laughs> no. Uh, we did talk about it before because my original purpose in having it cut off was to continue her in a slightly different vein uh, as being a little, a little more... Uh, a little uh, more serious about the warrior aspect, about the soldier aspect of her of her mission. Um, but I also was seeing, and I had done sketches where she was going to have short hair as Shannon, and they still have the long hair at some point in costume, but the long hair would be a wig, and it would give her a better uh, instance of secret identity between her being the because, you know, she's a, a young woman that was established as being like 6'2 or 6'3 or something like that. <laughs> if she's the, you know, if she's the, the uh, tour guide at Avengers Mansion, whether she's wearing her costume or not, which we established that she just kept her job as a tour guide but, but did it in costume. Uh, but if she was going to try to not do that, people would still be going, wait a minute, you're 6'2 and you're blonde. Are you American Dream? You know, that kind of thing. So I thought if we if we got to do more stories, it would be an option to give her, you know, a, a more distinct secret identity as we, as we moved along. Because if you remember, I was also, I, I admitted to the idea that I liked the idea if we would have had more time to explore the fact that Shannon was very attracted to Thunderstrike and Kevin as Thunderstrike because she's a 6'2 woman and he's like 6'5 when he's Thunderstrike. But when he turns to Kevin and he's only 5'10, 5'11, you know, she, she had, that's, they don't look like a couple anymore, you know, that kind of thing. And, and I, I was kind of curious to possibly play with that dynamic moving forward that she was having a trouble between, you know, her, much like Steve Rogers ended up having many times in his career, a balance between her superhero life and her private life, which Tom explored a little bit more in uh, in the miniseries with Don Knock. So, mm -hmm. now one of one of my favorite sequences in this issue is you finally have the the big kind of battle between uh, Kevin and Eric, uh, which erupts in you know um, Kevin grabbing Eric's Thunderstrike mace. And actually, you know, using it to then revert uh, Eric back into his human self, where we then get the revelation that uh, Eric is kind of sickened by what he's done um, and feels a lot of, you know, um, empathy and, and kind of regret and remorse for what he's done. And then you have a couple of pages later, you have uh, Kevin turn back into his regular human self or uh, typical self and then kind of get embraced by uh, the older version. How, what was it like kind of laying out the scene? 
Um, cause it's a very powerful moment. Like you don't even let, uh, I don't know what the discussion was, but Tom doesn't even put any words in you just have four panels where you just have the two men confronting each other and you just have Eric kind of breaking down. And again, this is a big moment for Kevin as well. And you even show the emotion, just the tears dripping down his face. Like what was like kind of putting this together? Cause obviously this is kind of the emotional crux of what you've been doing since the first issue. character to this whole thing um you know my affection for the other characters kind of comes through kevin and this was my whole point in wanting to do the story um you know and again tom was very uh open to my ideas on this thing and stuff i will as much as i give credit for tom when it's due uh that whole you may wield the power of Thunderstrike, but I am Thunderstrike. That was my line. Uh, and I enjoyed this scene because I wanted that to, to see that dynamic. That that scene, because I, I, Tom and I discussed it, and I think we together came up with this wonderful dynamic where Maria was there, and Maria establishes early on when she calls Thunderstrike Eric, and he goes, why call me that? That was my father's name. And she goes, oh, my God, you're Kevin? She said, yeah, because she lost her Kevin. And Eric lost his Kevin. And he even says, I think I went a little nuts after Kevin was killed as part of the resistance. And he went too far the other direction and became uh, lost. And she says, you know, so you do what you need to do to me. But don't think we're all that different. We're just two sides of the same coin. And Kevin's response is, you're right, Eric. We do have a lot in common, just not in the way you think. And he changes to Kevin. And that's the first time that this alternate Eric realizes he hasn't been fighting himself. He's been fighting an alternate version of Kevin. And that's where this very honest bond comes up. Because Kevin's not only getting a chance to hug his father for the first time in years, but this Eric is getting a chance to hug his son. And I love that dynamic. I, sometimes you're just given gifts and you gotta, you gotta enjoy them. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, this scene for me was incredibly important to the series. I mean, at the end of the issue, you have uh, Kevin ends up deciding to stay back in this alternate reality. And then um, kind of echoing a line that we talked about earlier is that when he watches the Avengers kind of go back through the portal um, and he's standing there with Cap and he says, you know, uh, Cap says, you know, they're all fine Avengers and good people. And then you have Kevin just say they're much more than that, sir, they're family. And again, echoing that feeling before that you'd said that, you know, that's what Cole Tiger had even said, that they aren't just these heroes that band together. They really are a family of heroes. Yeah, I mean, that the, the entire goodbye scene I enjoyed because we had seen these characters through their, put, put these characters through their paces, saw the different dynamics, and, you know, we were able to, to play that through to, you know, this wasn't, I mean, had we continued, you know, certainly Kevin would have been back. In fact, he did come back with the alternate Eric in an issue of Spider-Girl to help the battle Seth, but... Uh, you know, uh, we were able to keep track of the fact that Kevin had a cat back home and, you know, uh, his friendship, his new his friendship with, with J2, his connection to Kathy was very real, but more like brother and sister. Uh, uh, Shannon says, uh, think of us often, big guy, because we 
I'll certainly be thinking of you. You know, so she was finally acknowledging a personal connection with him uh, that she hadn't up to that point. And I mean, it was, yeah, I mean, some of this stuff just, you know, Tom often talks about the fact that the characters write themselves and you have to listen to them. You have to be able to look at the dynamic of what's going on in the story through each individual character's eyes and take advantage of that or you're leaving story on the table. You're leaving character on the table. Mm -hmm. Right, Tom? Absolutely. (laughs) Can I I bring up the two things I wanted to bring up before, both of which are uh, are shortcomings of the infamous DeFalco Friends team. Okay. Uh, But there are two things that I wanted to bring up. One, we miscommunicated a bit, and if you look at the artwork on the sequence where Cap throws Shannon the shield during the fight when her hair gets cut off. Yeah. Okay, everybody turn to that in your textbooks. <laughs> oh, I'm having trouble finding. It was earlier in the fight than I thought it was. There it is. Okay, we all got it? We got yeah. it. Cap's shield is on his right arm, Okay. And the case with the other shield gets blasted with the shield from the alternate Captain America shield that the Red Skull always kept and Doom always kept as a trophy. Okay? Okay. So Cap is on his right arm. In panel four, his shield is still on his right arm. He picks up the alternate Cap's shield with his left hand. See it? Yep. Okay. And then in panel six, Three, four, five, yeah, panel six, he's throwing with his right arm hmm. oh, yeah. the shield. It, it's, it's, a, it's confusing enough that my intention was that he was throwing American Dream his shield oh. and that he was going to take up the alternate Cap's shield in his continued battle for freedom on that Cap's world. Right? But Tom, rightfully so, I think, ultimately, scripted it that Cap was throwing Shannon the alternate Cap's shield. Because at the end, as they're saying goodbye, he says, keep the shield. I think this world's Cap would want you to have it. Oh, so, yeah. it was a slight miscommunication. Now that I look at the art with the argument, I did screw up on arms. So... I could see where Tom was thinking he, he was throwing. See, no, he was throwing his shield. Yeah. He picks, he picks up the alternate cap shield in his left hand, and he's still holding it in his left hand when he uses his his right arm to throw her a shield. So, yeah, I visually I was trying to show he was throwing her his shield, but Tom scripted it that he was throwing her the alternate cap shield. And nobody cares. But... <laughs> I also have that other point I wanted to make okay. as to why it was Wanda who was in the uh, in the device, and there is one line by Doom when she is trying to shut down the the uh, Universal Cube. He blasts her from behind and says, "I have outlawed magic on this world, which purged all its practitioners. The supernatural and all its mysteries are the sole domain of Doom." And that is why Tony and Wanda used her to power the portal plug because 
he had he had no other uh, practitioners of magic. Using magic to plug the hole was a great device against the alternate Earth because they had fewer people who knew how to control magic. Oh, I like that. And that's why Wanda was the, the only one that could be used in the uh, in the device because it was actually channeling her ability powers and everything to keep the the, the warp closed. Uh, but we, you know, like I said, I'm not sure it was clear enough to, to for everybody to make that connection. But the information was there. I'm just not sure it was presented in a, in a clear enough way for people to make the connection. But the thing I was going to talk about that, you know, it's a, a little embarrassing is, is it came out later in the Fantastic Five that we found out that Sue Storm and her power of invisibility was being used to plug a hole in reality and that she was being kept in suspended animation on the Fantasta station in the negative zone. You remember this, Tom? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, Tom was very proud of that story, rightfully so, because it was a very powerful story. We ended up actually wrapping that story up in Spider-Girl. And when I was pulling out all the reference and rereading all the Fantastic Five stories and everything, you know, I said, that was a really cool idea you uh, you had, Tom, of uh, having Susie plug the hole with her and visit with her force field and everything. And he goes, yeah, I thought it was pretty cool. And I said, putting your suspended animation and everything, you know? And he went, yeah. And I said, you know why I know it's such a cool idea? And he said, why? I said, because we used it in A-Next with the Scarlet Witch and the, <laughs> and the alternate Doom world. And he went, oh, my God. <laughs> and, and never realized it. And no fan had ever called us on it. Oh, that's too funny. There you go. Yeah. Obviously, it was handled differently enough, the dynamic of the Fantastic Five. That, I mean, you would think that's something that the fans would have been all over that, like like, you know, like ants on a side of beef, you know? But no, they weren't. No. And, you know, I, uh, I, I sometimes I get so deep in a story uh, that I kind of forget everything that happened beforehand. Um, <laughs> Well, as you said, you keep looking forward, right? That's a good idea. Yeah. It was a good idea when you did it. Why wouldn't it be a good idea when you do it again? (laughs) I didn't even realize I stole from myself. There you go. That was the only other thing I wanted to point out. But yeah, the the whole thing with, uh, I mean, there were plenty of ideas that were aborting from uh, Crimson Curse disappearing into the Universal Cube, too. I mean, we... I had a whole bunch of things that, you know, had we been fortunate enough to continue, uh, I don't think she would have been gone for very long. Uh, you know, uh, there, there's a little sidebar there that I'm not sure we have time for. We should probably go on to issue 12, and if we have time after we do issue 12, I'll bring up another sidebar about Crimson Curse. But anyway, proceed, gentlemen. So issue 12 is interesting. So I was reading uh, at this point, you know, Spider-Girl and A-Next. So it's interesting that you kind of bring back a lot of different characters that have shown up, not just in A-Next, but elsewhere as well. I'm speaking specifically about Killer Watt and Saberclaw. Um, were there any other kind of ideas of other characters that had shown up in the MC2 at this point that you might have used for the Revengers? Or how did you settle on these particular characters? I don't 
remember. Other than trying to pull them from the rest of MC2 to kind of have this be a celebration of, of MC2, um, do you remember anything else that was discussed? Nah, I honestly don't. I just, uh, you know, I, I you know, uh, Red Queen and Big Men, we were going to put that in, and then we just wanted to get other characters that would be a good mix. Um, and, you know, Saber Claw, I thought was a, was a cool character, and, uh, and on Killer White, it appeared in Spider Girl. I think Spider Girl a few times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, ah, come on. Yeah. Well, I mean, actually, if you look uh, at it practically, what we ended up doing is we had uh, Red Queen and Big Man, which were you know the whole core of the group. Uh, Ion Man had appeared in A Next. Saber Claw had appeared in J Two, and Killer White had appeared in Spider Girl. So it was a the, you know it was a sampling of bad guys from the other MC Two books. Yeah. So, and it it worked. You know, I mean, they they were all characters that Tom knew from writing them in the other titles and everything. So it was. I I, I would think that Saberclaw probably gets the award for uh, longest and and most extreme character arc in the entire existence of the MC2. (laughs) And by the end of it, he was an Avenger. Yeah. Now, looking at this issue, so what, what's so nice about it, and you, you kind of uh, hit the nail on the head, I think, Ron, when you call it kind of a celebration of the MC2, because uh, especially with this book in particular, you guys brought so many new other characters. They got to kind of team up with the ANX characters. You had the Earth Century, Cold Tiger, you had Argo, and you had Blacklight. And then getting to kind of bring them all back here and kind of work with the Avengers to kind of save them, I always thought it was just such a nice touch and a, a nice way of kind of uh, rewarding the reader for reading the entire year, year's worth of stories that, you know, all these characters that you got introduced to and then kind of ran off to do their own adventures, you actually got to bring them all back in for one big uh, battle. And I was really appreciated and enjoyed that uh, to kind of see how they all kind of work together. But, and, and again, the long game was that they all would have been potential Avengers at some point, you know, uh, in, in any kind of alternate reality where the book would have continued, they all would have been reintroduced at some point and would have been Avengers. Um, the one thing that when we finally put all those characters together, what I realized and was a little, I I don't know, I, I guess my reaction was to be slightly embarrassed by it is they were all of our diversity characters who were introduced and showed up and interacted with the team. But I liked the fact that they were, they were the ones that came back to rescue everybody, you know? But uh, we had our AI character and our, our Latino character and our black characters all came back to save the day, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, the only reason I was slightly embarrassed by it was that because they weren't the lead group, you know, that kind of thing. But... Uh, I love the idea that they were coming back to save the day. Uh, we, you know, it's not forced diversity. It was, uh, I don't know, what was it? Unconscious diversity, I guess. Well, you know, we had a lot of unconscious diversity over the years, so. Yeah, I can remember a couple of times on Thunderstrike questioning whether or not we had a diverse enough cast 
just because Eric was white. And then I actually looked at the books, and we had we had a lot of you know we had code blue characters and Samantha Joyce's roommate, and we you know we had uh, uh, the uh, the young Indian woman that worked at the uh, uh, Chandra, who was married to an Irish cop, Chandra O'Keefe, that we never got a chance to do much with. Uh, so yeah, we had a we had quite a bit of diversity just because we were taking advantage of our setting, which was New York City, and New York City is an incredibly diverse place. So. Absolutely. Um, one thing I liked about this issue, well, I liked a lot about this issue, but um, I did like to get that you got to have Hawkeye actually do something, um, you know, because you, you had brought him back and he's kind of blind, but here he actually gets to kind of take out Kilowatt, um, which was a, a cool moment. Uh, I didn't ask before, but um, when he first came back through the portal, he obviously had one eye being bandaged, but then when we see him here, he has two eyes. Um, was that always kind of meant to be the case that both eyes were going to go, or was that a decision made afterwards? Yeah. And I don't know if I asked this before, Ron, but... Basically, you know, we knew he was going to be blind. Okay. What's that? No, I was going to say, I was going to ask another question about a different character. So, yeah, if you want to uh, say more about Hawkeye, go ahead. Yeah, just that, I mean, we knew he was going to be blind, but my, my thinking was that one eye was completely destroyed and the optic nerve was damaged in the other one, so he slowly went blind in the other one, you know, that kind of thing. But uh, that's... That was just my behind-the-scenes thinking that <laughs> means nothing. At this point, he's blind in both eyes. But apparently, in a way that when he appeared in Spider-Girl, they were able to set him up with uh, with radar goggles that gave him, uh, you know, daredevil vision, so he was able to still use his uh, archery skills. So. Mm-hmm. And there's there's not a lot here given in terms of the relationship between Hawkeye and, and Brandon, but there's just enough that, again, you guys do such a good job of, of kind of showing that there is something there and that it kind of makes you want to know more about their relationship because the idea that, you know, obviously uh, Clint has a lot of respect for what Brandon can do and Brandon's trying to earn, you know, the respect of his mentor. Um, a question about, about Freebooter, though, and I think you mentioned it in the last conversation, but I may just be forgetting um, – yeah, I, I love the little mustache. Um, where did that come from? <laughs> Zorro. Yeah? Okay. <laughs> I mean, I, I saw him as a cross between Hawkeye and the Swordsman, and the Swordsman had that must, uh, mustache like that. Uh, but I just kind of saw it as Brandon's little nod to Errol Flynn and those swashbuckling characters. That's what Freebooter basically is. It's like a, a swashbuckler. And uh, so he was kind of playing into that image. At one point, uh, Blue Streak actually calls him Zorro. Uh, and there was also another conversation between Brandon and uh, Blue uh, Blue Streak, where he she says, you always were the teacher's pet, which was another way for us to kind of hint that their mentor was Hawkeye before we actually came out and said it, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing. At the, at the very end of the issue, uh, a moment I really enjoyed was, um, I, I guess, on the second to last page when you have 
the multiple panels of all the different characters kind of looking at each other before they decide to say Avengers Assemble, I just like the acting that you gave to each character because they're all kind of having that knowing look at each other. I don't know what it is, but there's something about the expressiveness that you give J2 is phenomenal in terms of really the whimsy of the character. So I love this kind of the smug, smugness of his face as they're kind of exchanging all these looks and leading into the last pages of Avengers Assemble. Um, I, like what was in your mind when you're kind of developing that and figuring out how to make the facial kind of show that they're all kind of in this agreement and leading to this moment because it, it works so well and you're acting. In That's terms exactly of- it. And it was, yeah, working through the characters, you have to act the character. And uh, on that one, J2 is the one who most obviously knows what they're going to do next. You know, he's, he, he, he's, only looks he looks confident and and kind of smirking because he knows what the answer is going to be and everybody else is feeling that bond and looking back and forth between and remember and look it's it's only our core group too it's not all the extra guys uh it's the core group so yes it's it's that moment of unity where they're all thinking exactly the same thing and none of them has a single doubt what the next panel is going to be, you know, that kind of thing. So, uh, but I'm, I'm glad that you appreciate that kind of thing because that's something that we do give some thought to. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's one of my favorite things about doing a team book is if you don't have fun with the dynamic, there's no point in doing the team book. If it really is just moving chess pieces around and, you know, uh, playing with action figures and, and deciding who lives and who dies and all that kind of, there's no fun in that. The fun is in the, the, in mixing the characters in a way that gives you uh, a, a cocktail of different responses and points of view and reactions to each other and to the situation that, uh, that you can really play with, that you can really steer and have fun with and, and let it lead you from story to story, from dynamic to dynamic. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I you know, certainly would have loved to have seen it go with a slightly different team or a, a slightly expanded team. I think there's, what, 10 or 11 characters on the final page. And believe me, I wouldn't have wanted to draw. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't have wanted to continue to draw a team book with 11 members or 10 members, but, uh, you know, I mean, they... They were all fun characters to do, so it would have been interesting to find, uh, you know, who the team would have settled in for, and and you did when you saw, um, you know, the next the next iterations of the team in, in uh, Last Hero Standing and Last Planet Standing and the A Next miniseries and stuff. You did get to kind of see how the team evolved. For one thing, American Dream became the, the team leader, you know, very much the team leader mm-hmm. because. Uh, mainframe backed off a little bit and and Kevin in the course of one of the stories loses his powers and everything so American Dream has to pretty much step up and 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 become the team the team leader correct Tom? I, I guess so I don't want to <laughs> well come on now you have to answer those questions because I wasn't involved in those stories uh, you know that's <laughs> I, I I didn't check that stuff, so I don't know. I don't know what I did those issues. Oh, fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. I mean, I I enjoyed the dynamic between all the characters in this. I I was you know, Tom gave Tony Stark something heroic to do, mm-hmm. where he uh, 
haunts the villains to activate mainframes uh, module um you know through killer watt and uh and he you know he and like as you pointed out he gave hawkeye something to, something to do in the fight and and the dynamic between uh, uh henry and hope i was just it just broke my heart that uh, you know that he was trying to bring her back pull her back from the edge and uh you know, the, the last thing Cassie says, you did the right thing when he stops her. And he says, maybe for the rest of us, but I think Cope always had her own agenda. Mm-hmm. I mean, he really, he went into this having no idea just exactly how hate-filled and broken his sister was. Yeah, and uh, I looked forward to doing more with uh, with Henry and stuff. That's one of the reasons we, that we used him as one of Whedon's guys in Spider-Girl. He was since he did technically break the law by breaking in and being an accomplice to torturing Avengers, he actually <laughs> was on probation and the federal government uh, put him into service as a, as a government agent for a while. When you guys were plotting out the, the last issue, did you always know that you'd ended on an Avengers Assemble knowing that you, that's how you ended the first issue? I think it was just about ending it as upbeat as possible. Mm. Um, you know, because anytime you're ending a series, I mean, the last time we ended a series was Thunderstrike, and it ended with the character dying. Mm. Um, and even that, we tried to give it a little bit more of an upbeat. And the actual last couple of pages for me are, you know, uh, they still choke me up, but they're, they are upbeat in their own way. That, you know, in the life goes on way. In the Eric made his sacrifice for a reason, and the reason he made his sacrifice worked. <laughs> you know, Kevin was okay. Jackie was okay. Everybody he cared about was okay. And, uh, you know, but this, we definitely wanted to, well, didn't want it to be a sad goodbye. We wanted it to be an upbeat. The Avengers will continue. You know, as I said, we were going to use the Incredible Hulk model. The Avengers are going to appear in Spider-Girl. They appeared in Spider-Girl the very next month, I believe, in Spider-Girl 13. That's right. She tried out uh, for membership. And, uh, you know, so so they kept appearing. Uh, Stinger became friends with uh, with Spider-Girl. And, and uh, you know, so the characters, we still got a, a lot of uh, mileage out of the characters and the fact that there wasn't Avengers existing in the MC2. And they were very much a, uh, a mainstay with the, the rest of the, the MC2 characters. So, I mean, it, yeah, it, we, we didn't want it to be, you know, oh, we failed, the book is over, you know, that kind of thing, because that wasn't the feeling at the time. The feeling at the time was MC2 was launching two new titles, uh, Wild Thing and Fantastic Five and The Buzz, and, and life was going to go on. I mean, The Buzz ended up just being a miniseries, Along and then we did the Dark Devil miniseries and things. So, you know, some things didn't play out the way we hoped, but you know, it it was what it was, and we were just kind of moving on to the next project. So, absolutely. Any any final thoughts on the series as a whole from either of you? It was a, a fun series. That that last page is hanging up in my living room right now. Is it really? Yeah. <laughs> did Al Milgram give it to you, or did I give it to you? I, I think you gave it to me. I, I, oh, okay. I think you gave 
I think he gave me three pages. That one, the one where um, in issue 11, where uh, uh, mainframe is punching Thor, is punching Donner. Uh, oh, yeah, 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 the big splash page, yeah. That, that big splash page, that's hanging on in, in the second floor outside my office. And, and the, the other one, which is the, uh, the we lost, uh, we won page. Oh, oh okay, uh, okay. Oh, nice. and, and that was back in the day when, you know, since you were editing these books, I remember the office being uh, shocked at you were bringing this, the, these books in under budget, and one of the reasons was you were lettering them on the boards. <laughs> and they had never heard of that before by that point at <laughs> Marvel. <laughs> yes, and, uh, but, it, but it was helping to bring the books in under budget and then they were all amazed and all this kind of stuff and it's like you guys are something else it's well I, I had an argument with, with, with one of the product, production people because he said but you know, uh, you know uh, we, we didn't get your lettering files he said there are no lettering files they're lettered on the boards I said what do you mean they're lettered on the boards <laughs> the original art boards they're lettered on the and he said to me, you can't do that. And I, and I thought, what do you mean I can't do that? It's done. Look, look at the hardboards. It's, it's there. It's done. I, you know, I used to think that it was very important to, to have the, the lettering on the boards. Is a, it saved the anchor a lot of time. And B, the anchor understood what the story was about. And knew how to ink the facial expressions, and sure. and a lot of times the inkers would look at scenes and and, and the, the interplay of the characters, and they, you know, call me up and and say, hey, you know, I'm looking at this character dealing with that character. What if such and such? I remember Al Williamson had really liked uh, Raptor and had ideas for Raptor and stuff because he was reading the stories. Yeah. One scene uh, in a Spider Girl scene where um, I forget the character's name. He, he was the uh, big moose character, moose. Moose. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, and 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 something is happening, and Moose grabs Jimmy Yama and yanks him out of the way so that he's not injured. And Al was very touched by that scene. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, he might be—he might be a big bully, but he doesn't want anything to happen to, to the guy. Right, right. Yeah, and I remember I, I got a phone call from Mel Milgram at one point. He really liked the scene where uh, Kevin and uh, Zane are bonding at Kevin's apartment, uh, and he really liked the scene with uh, uh, Kevin sitting on the couch with Alex's cat walking across him and he petting him and all this kind of stuff. And he gave me props for. Because sometimes when you're doing superhero comics, you can lose sight of doing the civilian stuff and you know, trying to keep it as naturalistic as possible. And I remember Al commenting on that scene, again, because it was lettered on the board, and the scene with uh, Kevin and Maria being trapped under the rubble. He really, really enjoyed that scene and called me about it. Hmm. So, yeah. So, I mean, it does. It keeps everybody more involved in the characters and in the story. If you know it's the way it always used to be done, uh, I think uh, there's a lot of uh, Thunderstrike at the time that was done paste up. It was before computers, but it was 
the, the lettering was being done on uh, vellum overlays and being cut out and pasted down by production guys. Yeah. So. Well, yeah. you know, with this stuff, it, it is the interplay of the different characters, like like you often say. And, um, you know, we try to treat these characters you know, these characters as real people and and try to give them real real reactions and real emotions and, you know, understand that they have lives beyond their, their costume identity. I, um, I, I really hate when, you know, I'm reading a book and, and the people in costume only talk to other people in costume. beyond their superheroes time. Um, and, and he brought in a lot of soap opera, which I think is is simply lacking these days. We need the soap yeah, opera. You're right. He created, it was, it was for the, all intents and purposes, the world outside our window, and these characters interacted in the real world. And along the way, and again, there are probably plenty of examples where this is not the case, but a lot of superhero titles these days, because they're always looking to one-up what happened the year before and all this kind of stuff, a lot of superhero titles have become more akin to, like, The Lord of the Rings or Star Wars or, or something where you're in a completely fantastic environment that is elevated to the point where it no longer even resembles the world outside our window. And as Tom said, all the heroes are powered characters interacting with other powered characters and you know all that kind of stuff and nobody is interacting with regular people uh, a lot of characters don't have secret identities anymore and we're and, and we've lost sight of the grounding of the, the you know pseudo real world you know where anybody's worried about paying the rent or uh, getting really injured or getting a cold or, you know, anything that might create that bond between the reader and the characters. Uh, it's easy to lose sight of that because you're always looking for the next big epic. And in most cases, that means something cosmic or something catastrophic. And it's no longer the world outside your window, you know? It's no longer a world that you recognize as being even even uh, resembling the the day-to-day existence that we all share, that we can all relate to. It's funny, I was uh, recently... uh, How do you feel about that, Adam? Are you still reading the current crop of books and stuff? Of course you are, right? I'm still reading, and I think, yeah, I definitely miss... Well, I miss, first of all, I miss more subplots. I miss uh, the more human elements. I miss the supporting cast that used to be around for a lot of different characters. So I was recently rereading, um, actually one of your guys, um, storylines from amazing Spider-Man right after, uh, Flash Thompson was framed for being the hobgoblin. And it was just struck me how you had these great subplots going. You had flash in jail and talking with his lawyer and stuff. And it was really interesting character work. And it didn't involve Peter at that time. Peter was off doing his own stuff, but I still cared. And I still cared about those characters and seeing what was going to happen to them next. And it felt very rich. And like you had MJ kind of had her own thing as, as a model and she's kind of, you know, 
uh, she had a few different conversations in, that were very interesting and didn't involve Peter at all and because she had her own life and it felt like those characters felt very lived in uh, and their worlds felt very full and I don't often feel like that anymore where we'll have more of an A plot but we don't really have a B plot anymore or the supporting cast barely matters or they're not we don't feel like really keeping up with them and that's something I think is really lacking is that whereas you guys had a whole full world it felt like characters when they went off screen were still living their lives and when they came back they had progressed in their story and then we got to see what had happened with them next whereas I don't feel like that often seems the case anymore I was, you know, I was actually sometimes frustrated. Uh, we would get frustrated even on Thunderstrike, where we had things we wanted to do with Eric and his supporting characters, and we would find we didn't have room uh, because it, the issue was already full, and we only had time for maybe one or two scenes when we would have liked to do three. Uh, the same was true with A Next, as we were barreling along with A Next. I mean, I had this this idea where I wanted to introduce some of uh, Kevin's classmates. Uh, at the uh, at the art institute he was going to, and and my idea visually was they were going to visually recall uh, the Warriors Three. Oh, cool! There was going to be a you know, big heavy set character and a really good looking kid that uh, got all the girls, and uh, this emo guy that never talked but was an incredible illustrator, you know that kind of thing, and it was going to be Volstag and Fandral and, and Hogan. Uh, and at some point, you know, I was going to be hoping that at some point we'd, you know, we'd get we'd get Kevin to uh, to Asgard, and he'd get to meet the Warriors Three, and he'd go, "Wait a minute," you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> uh, one of the other things that was in the file for a next that we never got around to is uh, the character that we introduced in the Six One Six Thunderstrike Kevin series, uh, Grunhilda. I hadn't had the name, the idea for that name yet, but there was a design for a Valkyrie that I wanted to introduce in A Next as being sent to Earth by Thor to help Kevin along with whatever he needed, and was going to become, you know, much like the way the Valkyrie joined the Defenders. I was seeing her as a potential Avenger, is having. Uh, I mean, we ended up doing something similar with Thor's daughter, but uh, at one point I did a design for the Valkyrie character that was wearing pretty much the same outfit that Groot had to wear when she was finally introduced all those years later. And she did have red hair, although she had the Valkyrie braids and stuff. So, I mean, you know, those, that was an idea that I had had all the way back on A-Next and that we didn't get a chance to actually explore until the 616 Kevin series. Hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it was, there was a lot of stuff that I remember having certain things that I, that were in the shoot that I was hoping to do, um, and involving them with mythology was one of them, was to re-involve Hercules, and at one point I was going to have, I had an idea for having the Avengers attacked by the, the Furies that were sent, whether they were sent by Hera or something to torture people and make them crazy before they were killed and stuff. And then she was going to, because of what had happened to Hercules, she was going, she was going to hold the Avengers accountable or something and send the Furies to fight them. And on and on and on. You know, there were a couple of undeveloped ideas that I had had kicking around. It's very cool. 
I wish we got to see them. Well, I mean, it, well, they did. They did uh, continue. I mean, there, there, are, there was plenty more Avengers action and adventure. With uh, there was the, the the two last hero, last planet standing, and uh, the, the the mini. Was there just the one mini series that you did with Ron Lim, or was there more than that, Tom? I think there was two. so much guys for agreeing to do this i know we've talked for i think it's almost two hours and 45 minutes so i i really appreciate you guys taking the time and uh, and the energy to kind of go through um you know annex with me as i said I, i've been a huge fan of the series for a very long time and i really appreciated being able to pick your brains about um all the decisions that went into both the writing and the illustrating of this series so uh, from the bottom of my, of my heart i really appreciate all the time you've spent with me Than I do, so. <laughs> <laughs> and as I said before, Adam, it's it's so incredibly flattering that you, you know, were affected and moved by the by the Annex series to the point that you even wanted to do these last two episodes. And uh, you know, we can't help but be humbled and flattered by that. And it's a pleasure to kind of relive some of it. Yeah, I mean, it is it is twenty years ago or more, so uh, recollections aren't as wonderful as they could be but uh but it was fun reliving it it really was i i had a great time rereading the books and uh you know i i had it gave me a reason to go looking for issue 12 i found two copies of it but one was really beat up but the one was terrific <laughs> and i was able to uh to relive that as well and uh it was a it was a lot of fun it was a fun time working with the falco it's always fun working with the falco but uh you know, it was a, a, a great run and a lot of fun, and who knows? Maybe we'll see the characters again someday. I was surprised as anybody when they did that Secret Wars 2 
and I was contacted by the alternate cover editor, which is actually a separate job for somebody, uh, the variant cover editor, <laughs> and was contacted to, to do a uh, an MC2 characters cover, you know, that I just did a uh, an homage to uh, Secret Wars, the first Secret Wars cover by Mike Zeck mm-hmm. with the MC2 characters. Uh, you know, that, that kind of stuff comes out of left field every once in a while where they're, you know, where they're saying, how about you try that? You know, that kind of thing. And, uh, well, even when we did the, the, the Spider Girl thing for Spider on the backup in Spider Island, and uh, originally it was going to be an MC2 world, uh, but uh, they, then they made it clear that they really wanted it to be more Spider Girl centric, but we were able to use the uh, A-Nex characters and uh, have fun with that again, you know, and, and show the team having evolved from the Ron Limbini series and such. And, you know, so it's, the, the characters are still out there kicking around. So who knows what the future may bring? <laughs> Absolutely. There are always possibilities, Spock said. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, I, get, I very rarely look at my old work, um, and uh, I went through these issues seven to to twelve. <laughs> you, you can't really tell that I did, but I did. <laughs> and I was surprised at how how enjoyable those issues actually were. Um, uh, when you, when you're actually working on the on the issues, uh, you know you're you're so deep in the characters and. You know, spending so many hours on each page, you know, trying to get it right and stuff that you kind of hope it all it all works at the end. Um, but it, it's nice to realize that yeah, a lot of this stuff actually did work. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, so. yeah. Sometimes we actually knew what we were doing, Thomas. Yeah, I I, I still find that hard to believe, but <laughs> but some someday we'll get this right. We're still a little far. Don't let that cat out of the bag. <laughs> well, again, thank you so much. I really appreciate you guys uh, taking part. And uh, you're always welcome back on the show whenever you want. Um, yeah, it's just been such a pleasure. Well, it's been a great pleasure on our side, too, Adam. Thank you very much, and continued luck to you with the podcast. Thank you so much. Everybody take it easy. I'm going to go to sleep now. Have a good night. (laughs) Good night, everybody.